שם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, let it be an aventura again, ברוך השם. We are uh, now up to Musar Pirkei Avot number 71. This year we'll also go for Refua Shlema to uh, Levana Batsara, Sara Bat Levana, um, David Ben Nesriya, Doris Bat Jora, and anyone that uh, I couldn't think of or didn't remember, all of Am Yisrael Bezot Hashem will have Refua Shlema, Refua Tanefesh, Refua Aguf. So, we uh, have Mishnah in Avot, Tet Zayin, 16, 416. Uh, and then we have also Parashat Lech Lecha, where we are actually introduced to Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, the uh, beginning of Judaism, if you will. Uh, and then obviously the, uh, there's no shortage of uh, craziness around the world that uh, Hashem uses as tools to wake us up, um, whether it be political issues or religious issues, uh, anything and everything that's out there. Uh, Baruch Hashem, Hashem is uh, constantly sending us different messages uh, that, to wake us up. Now, uh, before I take your questions, of course, I'm sure you're going to have some questions. Before I take some questions, there is... Uh, always people out there that um, like to debate. They like to debate. They like to debate with Torah. They like to debate with the truth of the Torah. You know, because in, uh, it's not necessarily new. Um, it's always been people like that. Whether it's going back to the days of Korach, Ve'adato, and, and his crew that went against Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, or it's, say, the people that went against uh, David HaMelech. Or it's a, uh, the uh, reformers and conservatives. And today it's the, uh, just people that are looking for excuses to continue sinning. And sometimes those people continue sinning look more religious than you and I. Uh, and they've gone to more yeshiva than you and I. And they, uh, in some cases, say at least that they've learned more material than you and I, how much they've actually can, you know, believe and, and follow and so on is a different story. But nonetheless, sometimes you see the biggest surprises uh, from uh, the, the least expected. Uh, so, Baruch Hashem, one of the uh, big things that we've had the merit to do is over the last few years is we've had an extraordinary amount of siyat Dishmaya and Yishiurim just to be able to tell you guys the truth uh, the da Torah, the, the 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 truth of the Torah, and um, oh, here we go. We have uh, the uh, Satan showed up early today. Usually, it gives me about a half hour. Oh, okay, here we go. So Yetzirah showed up. Just be quiet, please, for the rest of the shiur. Yetzirah, let us do the shiur. Um, so uh, usually, it gives me about a half hour, half hour, forty minutes. Then he shows up. He shows up late. Shows up late, like some people. He shows up late, but today he's showing up early. He's showing up right on time. So, uh, already disturbing the camera. Is the camera online on, on uh, sideways again? It's sideways again? I think it's sideways. Probably. It's probably sideways. It's usually sideways. If he showed up, it's mean it's usually sideways. So, uh, you would think that I'm on purpose doing it on sideways already by now. I haven't figured it out. It's just I'm just doing it on, on its own. So, anyway, uh, people like to argue. People don't like here. It's good? It's good? Baruch Hashem. People like to argue, people like to debate, uh, and um, especially when you tell people the truth, 
that hurts. What does it mean, truth that hurts? Uh, what does it mean, truth that hurts? Truth that hurts means that it's truth that you cannot debate, you cannot dispute, and is to such an extent where if you agree with it, you have to change. Meaning, you can't reasonably say and admit that this is the truth and stay the same. You can't. It's like uh, someone tells somebody, listen, there's a little bit of poison in this cup that you're about to drink. The guy says, no, no, I believe you, but it's okay. You can't. Why? Once you know that, once you agree and you believe that there's poison in the cup, you're not going to drink it. So sometimes there's truth that's so in your face that you have to change. So what happens with sometimes with people is that they see the truth and the truth shakes their world apart. Uh, because they know that they have to change. And sometimes they're able to change Baruch Hashem. Uh, they're able to overcome the Yetzirah despite how strong he is. And sometimes they just don't want to. So Baruch Hashem, over the last few years, we've had Siyat to call out a few things that apparently have either been uh, neglected or just not spoken about in public. Uh, and uh, we've got the uh, support of the Chachamim that, uh, you know, that actually came out. So, for example, uh, what we've been talking about, the whole wig situation over the last couple of years, uh, I've told people that how, uh, aside from the fact that the, the long-standing debate of wigs not being kosher simply because they're not modest, uh, we added a new uh, twist to the argument where we said that even if you use the hetel, the leniency to say that wigs are modest, you still can't use the vast majority of wigs out there because they're made out of real hair. And uh, with real hair wigs, they are, it's, it's impossible for you to know if it's coming from Avodazara or not because the vast majority of the wigs in the world are coming from India as a part of Avodazara, as a part of idol worship. So we've already been talking about this for a couple of years and Baruch Hashem in uh, the last couple of months the Gdolei Adol have uh, joined the argument, the public argument, have taken it to the completely next level, the higher level, Baruch Hashem, and have um, passed Mamash and Alacha, both in Ashkenazi, Sephardi, everywhere. You're not allowed to use real hair wigs at all. There is no, you're, you're just, it's Mamash Pasul. You cannot use any real hair wigs at all from now on, regardless of what posek you rely on, Relies if it's, the, if it's the Lubavitcher Rebbe, or if it's this one, or if it's Ashkenazi, or if it's Mar- It doesn't make a difference. No one allows Avodah Zarah. No one. No Posek, no Rav, no nothing. No one allows Avodah Zarah. No one allows idol worship. And since we know for sure that what they do in, in uh, India is idol worship, uh, as a matter of fact, I have a couple of students that are from India, and one of them, actually made a video. He lives in India. He says, yes, of course, that what they do in, in these temples is Abu Dazara. He goes, how does anybody think it's not Abu Dazara? He lives there. He's an Indian. And he says it actually starts from childhood. Things that I didn't even know. So it's part of the whole, it's part of Amash, the, 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 the raising of these kids. So we brought this to people's attention, not to repeat, but just again to remind people that Baruch Hashem, it's what we say when, when you say the right thing, when it's Da'at Torah, but you don't always necessarily have 
the source right off the top of your head, or you don't necessarily have the Gdolador signing off on it right away, or you don't have the book right away, but you said the right thing. So when, when, when you find out that someone else has said it, that's bigger than you, smarter than you, and has their verification, that gives you the stamp of approval, you say, Baruch Shekivanti. Baruch Shekivanti meaning, uh, it's, it's a blessing that I was in the right direction. Baruch Shekivanti, I was in the right direction. I, I aimed in the right direction. So Baruch Shekivanu and the, and the issue of wigs. Uh, Baruch Hashem, now it's Ramash, Allah, it's an halacha, you're not allowed to uh, wear these wigs anywhere, not in Israel, not in America, not anywhere. Anyone that does is violating halacha. Uh, and of course, this is spreading. This is spreading like wildfire. I recently got some people sending it to me. I guess they didn't know I was, we were the ones that, I guess, tried to uh, be uh, behind this for a couple of years already. Uh, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that people have started sending it to me. It's like, oh, by the way, I heard in your lecture you mentioned things against wigs. Actually, we just see this stuff posted all over Canada. We see this stuff posted in different places in Europe. We see this stuff posted in Israel. So people are actually sending it to me. Baruch Hashem, so I'm seeing that this is actually almost spreading like wildfire and different people that are choosing to overcome their Yetzirah are changing. They're taking off their wigs and Baruch Hashem, there are some people that are doing tshuva and now unfortunately always people that are making excuses. Uh, so that was one thing that Baruch Hashem was one big thing. Uh, another thing is in regards to the whole uh, bringing the idol worshippers, the missionaries into the Bet Knesset, that whole fight that we had uh, in the beginning of uh, this secular year. Uh, Baruch Hashem, we had several of the Gdolei Ador sign a letter. Uh, one of them uh, was uh, Rabbi uh, Kaminetsky, one of the Gdolei Ador in America, uh, which agreed on the spot that this is obviously um, 100% a soul. So again, once again, Baruch Shekivanu. And the reason why I mention it to you is not to, you know, uh, pat myself on the back, chas v'shalom, but because it happened again. Uh, about, uh, I think it was maybe almost three years ago, three years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, we did a shiur, we mentioned about how this new style that uh, Bar Minan, what's happening in Am Yisrael, uh, both in the religious and non-religious part, that's the problem. As uh, there's a new problem in modesty for males. Male modesty has become, or immodesty, has become a problem for the first time in history for Jewish people. Throughout all of history, we've always had been very careful about women modesty. Covering their hair, covering their body, you know, watching their speech, how they act, so on and so forth. But in general, with Males, with, with guys, with men, we've never actually had a problem. Uh, it's, you know, guys never had a problem with modesty until recent generation where these uh, fashion designers that work for the Satan himself uh, came up with a new plan to make these uh, new style of uh, clothing that are tight clothing. And somehow they convinced the world that they look better with extra tight clothing, even when this extra tight clothing accentuates their fat. Even when this tight clothing accentuates their giant love handles. Even when this tight clothing accentuates their giant buttocks. Even when this tight clothing makes them look like an elephant, just with, 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 without the little thing, that the little big nose, 
And somehow we've convinced Jewish men to wear this. And I'm not just talking about the secular world, you know, the Israelis, the, uh, the, the Sephardi. No, 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 I'm talking about everyone. I'm talking about inside yeshivot. You have guys going and changing their suits. They have suits that are normal suits that uh, throughout all of history have always been the same pretty much. A suit is a suit. A suit is really one of the few things that hasn't changed that much. There's a few different styles of suits. Four-button suits, three-button suits, double-breasted suits. But in general, the suit as a whole hasn't changed much. It's always been a classic. In the, in the past, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a World War II era and before, people used to wear a suit all the time. I wish we were born in those days. We probably were. We just did something terrible. We came back again. But anyway, suits have always been a classic. Somehow we've managed to ruin that. We've managed to ruin a classic where they go to these tailors and they either buy brand new or they ruin the existing suit they have by making it extra tight. Where much you see these guys wearing these suits tight and you know and like they make sure that it's extra tight and if they lose weight they tuck it in even more and you know you see these guys constantly going like this and constantly like what's wrong with you? How could it be so comfortable? How can it be comfortable to cunt to wear such tight clothes? And the pants, balminan, balminan, you can see the guy's shape regardless of how many curves he has. Now, it's funny, but it's true. And this is not modest. Aside from it looking like a woman, which is a different problem of its own, it's not modest. It's not modest for anyone to see the shape of a body of either a male or a female. And this is something... Long time. This is not appropriate for a male or a female, and we brought this up in a shiur already a couple of years ago, and some of the young guys from Yeshivot, Avrechim, wanted to like hang my head. Like, oh, you're machmir, you're stringent, you're this, you're making applause. I said, this is not modest, you're not allowed to wear this stuff. I mentioned some sources and so on. But no one wanted to take it seriously. And everyone actually uh, made fun of it in some cases, except women. Women always agreed. Women always agreed that, yeah, you know what? It actually, aside from it not being uh, uh, modest, it looks terrible. From the viewpoint of a woman, I don't have one woman, one woman ever told me that this stuff, this, this clothing looks good. Especially since most guys are overweight. Most guys are not exactly a superstar uh, runway model. Most of these guys have an extra belly or two, have uh, some, uh, some extra fat that they can lose, and for some reason, someone has convinced them that they should wear extra tight clothes to accentuate it. So, we've talked about it, and then there was a chidush that I had when I was in Israel. I did a, a few shulim over there a year or two ago, and uh, I said that actually the, uh, there was one time in history that the, uh, these tight pants, these skinny jeans, were in style, and that was in the Nazi army. Nazi Germany army, that's actually what they wore. They wore very skin-tight jeans, uh, skin-tight pants, and they were loose in the hip area. Uh, and I actually did, I took a, a picture of Nazi pants that was online, Next to uh, just a regular uh, skinny jeans, skinny pants that they had online. 
and you have a, you know one next to the other, and it was a, a, you know a picture speaks a thousand words. But again, there's no dollar dough supporting it. Nothing. What happened over the last, uh, I believe, week has been extraordinary. Where the gedolei dough from Israel, uh, Rabbi Mazuz, Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef. Uh, and several other of the Gdolea Adol have actually passed an halacha. They even quoted the Shulchan Aruch, uh, Evan Ha'ezel, um, section 23, halacha 1 and halacha 6, as sources that wearing these skinny clothes, wearing these tight clothes, is 100% isur deoraita. It's 100% forbidden in the Torah for males to wear. So now you have Baruch Hashem, Baruch Shekivanu again, that you have Gdoledor finally, uh, you know, actually are, they're bringing this to their attention and they're seeing it and they're seeing it uh, as clear as day. And it's not that the uh, Gdoledor um, ignore this stuff. It's just they don't see it. They don't go outside to malls and see how these people dress. So unless you bring stuff to their attention, in general, they're just in front of their, their, their Torah, they're learning all day, they're, they're, they're living a Torah life. So a lot of the stuff you have to bring to their attention, and unfortunately, because there's so many middlemen, it's difficult to sometimes bring uh, major things to their attention. Uh, so, Baruch Hashem, this is now again an official halacha, and uh, uh, the reason why I mention it is because, again, Baruch Shekivanu, when you see that you speak from the heart, you tell people the truth, Eventually, Hashem was going to let the rest of the world know that this truth is nonetheless 100% pure. So, Baruch Shekivanu. So, now with this uh, shiur we have today, we have a lot of Baruch Hashem, we have a lot of great things to talk about. Um, we have this Mishnah from Rabbi Yehuda, we have uh, the Parashat Lech Lecha, we have uh, the questions from you, they're going to start right about now. So, Ezad Hashem. Alright, who wants to start? Jews having sex with non-Jews. Bottom line, that's what you're trying to say. Married, not married is irrelevant. Okay. So are they allowed or are they not allowed? Not allowed. But okay, we'll go into details a little later. Okay, next question. So would Adam Rishon. Well, Adam Rishon is the first monotheist. He was created by Hashem Itbach himself. Uh, and then, uh, then obviously that continued. But uh, Avraham Avinu is the considered the uh, patriarch in essence where it was like an organized religion, if you will. It was an organized religion. He started, he's the first one that started daily prayer. He started Shachrit. And it became like a uh, an organized religion. And actually, that's one of the things we'll talk about about the parasha uh, to show that he was actually the first Kiruv rabbi in history. I already did a blessing before. Next. Past 120. 
okay. Past 120. There are also other, other people that live past 120. Um, the simple answer is, is that the general person will not live past 120. Some people will have merits to live beyond. Uh, that's the that's the general uh, thing. There is some midrashim to talk about why and who and when and so on, like why Avraham Avinu, why even his father. His father lived about 205 years. He wasn't exactly the biggest tzaddik in the world. He was an idol worshiper for most of his life. Uh, Terach, uh, before he did tshuva. And uh, we know that Terach did tshuva and he has a share of the world to come because there's a verse in the Torah uh, that says Terach, Terach. It says his name twice. And uh, Chazal tell us that any time a name is mentioned twice in a row in the Torah, that means that person has Olam Abba. It's like one of the there's rules in the Torah. This is one of the rules. Anytime there's the same name twice, that means that particular person has Olam Abba. So it explains certain things where, for example, you don't have the story of Terach doing tshuva in the written Torah. You have it in the oral Torah. So this is where Chazal learned that story, in essence. Uh, next. Go ahead. Uh, I'm just uh, very curious. You see that Avraham was very involved in bringing the Torah to the Jews, especially in Mexico, as far as they know. Now, he wasn't, he didn't bring the Torah to anybody. Okay. All right? So uh, I would say, obviously, everybody else was pretty much not all over for a big program of the court. Okay. Chazal did. Chazal did. We don't. We're making the mistake. Chazal did. If you look in the Gemara, they celebrated the Goyim. Uh, anytime a Goy would come to them and want to convert, they would celebrate them. There's several stories of some of the most uh, extraordinary Jews that ever lived were, were converts. Uh, and uh, there's several stories of, uh, for example, there's um, uh, Elisha, uh, the Anavi, and uh, Gehazi, his servant, lost his Olam Abba, because he got in the way of a conversion. The king wanted to convert after seeing Elisha's miracle. And Gehazi ruined it. And he lost his Olam Abba. So even though he, the, the king became a righteous Noahide. said, no, no, that's not good enough. He could have been a Jew. Could have been a Jew. In today's world, they try, they're, they're discouraging it. But that's wrong. That's not what Chazal taught us. Chazal actually taught us that we actually... We should encourage people to become Jews. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's several, there's several dugmaot, there's several examples in the Torah, in the Gemara, that talk about how uh, you know they would welcome non-Jews. They actually had special treatment for non-Jews that wanted to look for the truth. And unfortunately, today it's very different. The biggest reason for that, the biggest reason for that, is how much persecution the Jew, Jewish people have gotten. Uh, that's one of the biggest reasons that we're like a beat-up kid. You beat up kid after they beat you up so many times, you don't want to play with them anymore. You just want to leave me alone, leave you alone, and you know. But the reality of it is that we're not leaving them alone. Because if we were really leaving them alone, we would have our world, they would have their world. Okay, then you're right. Then you have an excuse there. But the reality is we're not leaving them alone. Because when it comes to business, we associate with the goyim all the time. 
when it comes to uh, different hobbies and sports and things like that, we associate with them all the time. So how come we don't bring them closer to, to Judaism? So that's, you're 100% right. We are supposed to be a light to the nations, and we're not doing it. And that's actually one of the things that I try to do, and a couple of other rabbis are trying to do it. Uh, there's a uh, big Noahide movement uh, that's uh, started uh, by a few uh, Chabad rabbis. There's a couple of other rabbis that are trying to encourage people to convert to Judaism, myself included, uh, and help them uh, convert. I'm more interested in getting people to convert to Judaism than helping them become righteous Noahides because I think it's much more beneficial for everyone, for, for, them, for the world to have more righteous Jews. But the general mentality is exactly like you're saying, which is leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. We're not encouraging anyone to, uh, to convert. We're not missionizing. And if you tell people that you're going to go out there and try to get people to uh, know the truth, they look at you like you have five heads. They look at you like, what do you mean? You're not, you're not missionizing, are you? Like as if there's something wrong with it. In reality, we are supposed to do that. In reality, the, uh, we are supposed to go out there door to door and tell people, listen, we have the Torah. You want to be a Jew? Good. You want to be a Noahide? Good. Either way, do something. We are supposed to do it. But unfortunately, in the world we live in, we're, we're predominantly in a, uh, in a world full of idol worship. So if we do that, we'd have a lot of problems. So what we're trying to do is stay quiet in some regards. The, uh, the, the other issue is the fact that there's a very, very big problem within our own people. Meaning, so many of us, Jews, are not keeping. 80% of Am Yisrael do not even keep Shabbat. 80% of Am Yisrael don't say Shema Yisrael. Uh, so the vast majority of Am Yisrael do not keep mitzvot, so when you tell many big rabbis, you know, why don't you go out there and you know, recruit some goyim, it's much easier to get a goy to become a righteous Jew than it is to get a wicked Jew to become righteous. Much easier. You tell them, listen, once I fix my own people, I'll go out there. That's the mentality. In general, based on halacha, it's right. Meaning you have to take care of the Jew before you take care of the goy. But you can't ignore the goy. So that's the part that we're missing. We are supposed to, if a goy comes to you, and he asks you for help, he asks you for answers, you, you have to give it to him. I know. We talked about them before. I actually made a, uh, I made a video about uh, how uh, certain communities are anti-converts. And there's a, the video actually, uh, there was a clip, about a 10-minute clip or so, that we made here about maybe two, three months ago, about a couple of stories of uh, righteous converts uh, that are students of mine that went to mikveh's and were uh, kicked out in uh, one of those places, both, both communities that rejects, reject converts. And uh, we uh, actually publicized these stories, and Baruch Hashem, these stories have actually reached the top. I just got a call uh, right um, after the holiday, right after the holiday from a Beddin that I'm familiar with, uh, trying to find, the detail, find out the details, because the video apparently got to them, and uh, they said, we have, to, we have to, this can't be. If a community doesn't want to help someone convert, that's their right. They don't want to help them convert. If you want to help somebody convert, you don't have to be an expert in everything. Just like if you're a rabbi, even if you have the, uh, you know, let's say the smicha for several different things, you don't have to practice everything. So if you don't want to help people convert, that's your right. But to reject... A righteous convert, it's 100% isu from the Torah. 
it's 100% a violation from the Torah, at least 36 different sins. At least 36 different sins are being made uh, when you are going against a righteous convert to such an extent that we showed that the Rambam, that the Rambam himself actually says, when the Torah says that Hashem loves the convert, what is he trying to teach us? What is he trying to teach us? He's not trying to teach us that you're supposed to just love the convert just like you love a regular Jew. Because that would just be the same. Hashem is telling us 36 different times that he has special treatment for the converts. He's not repeating the same law 36 times. What is he saying, the Rambam says? Rambam says that you are supposed to love a convert more than a natural born Jew and to the extent of how much you love God. That's how much you're supposed to love a convert. That's alakha. It's not a like chumrah uh, or you should or you'll be a chassid if you do it. No, no, no. It's mamash alakha. You're supposed to love a convert as much as you love God. That's what the Rambam says. So when a community not only doesn't love a convert but rejects them, embarrasses them, uh, kicks them out of the community, kicks them out of a mikveh, kicks them out of a shul, puts a sign in the front of the shul, we're not, you know, no converts allowed, and does things like that, this is a place that you're, you shouldn't even pray in. Forget about be part of the community. You shouldn't even pray in such a place because that place is, 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 is full. The leader, at the very least, the leader is a big sinner. Maybe the entire Kehillah doesn't agree with it. But whoever put that sign, allows that sign to be there, which is the leader, he's always blamed. The blame, you have to blame the leader. He allows the sign to be there, he's 100% a sinner because you're not allowed to go against the convert after he converted. You don't want to help him before he converted, that's your business. You don't have to. You don't have to help everybody. It's fine. You should, but you don't have to. But to reject him, you're rejecting someone that's 100% Jewish, even more so than you. Even more so than you, that you have this, your mother and your father, and your, even if you come from David Melech. So that's a big problem that's being made today, is that we've taken some of the things that Chazal told us, and some of these Chachamim lived in recent generations. Uh, they told us they want to, you know, protect us. They made a takana. In certain communities, they made a takana where there was a lot of uh, people within the community that were intermarrying, and uh, they were uh, encouraging non-Jewish people to convert for the wrong reasons, not because they were really Jewish. So the Rabbanim made a law. They said, listen, we don't know who's real. We don't know who's not real. We're making a takana. We're making a law. That we're not accepting converts as of for now. They never said we're rejecting converts. They said we're not going to convert converts ourselves. So you know that if... You're going to try to convert your non-Jewish girlfriend or boyfriend. Not here. It's not going to be welcomed here. That's fine. That's the takana. They added a law to the law. They took it and they put poop on it. They ruined it. So that's the problem that we have today. When we take things into our own, into our own words and we start uh, ruining things. Hundred percent. It's in the Gemara. It's also in the Zohar Kadosh. Hashem says that in the Sefer Dvarim, that part of the punishment is that He's going to send us to the four corners of the world, 
So Chazal asks, what's good out of Hashem sending us to the four corners of the world? Because Kol Avid Rachamana, Tav Avid. Rabbi Akiva told us in Masechet Brachot, page 63, that everything that Hashem does must be for the good. Must be. There has to be good in it. So what could possibly be good out of Hashem spreading us thin? When you have few people, but at least they're in one community, at least we feel strong. But you spread the few people into four corners of the world, we're small little communities, minyan here, minyan there. You put us all in one place, we feel stronger. Now we're in four corners. What could be good out of that? So the Zohar Kadosh and Chazal and Gemara also says that the main reason, the real reason, why Hashem sent us to the four corners of the world is that at the end of times, the Gemara Masechet Avodah Zarah, page 3a at the end and the beginning of 4a, 3b at the end and the beginning of 4a, says that at the end of, uh, at the end of times there's going to be a lot of gerim. There's going to be a lot of converts. A lot of converts that Hashem promised them when there was Matan Torah 3,300 years ago, they wanted to convert. They wanted to be Jews, but their people, their nation didn't want. So he says, I promise you because you wanted, I'm going to bring you back in a generation where you're going to have an unusual circumstance, an unusual life, an unusual desire to be Jewish. You're going to have, a, you're going to have an opportunity to convert. When is it going to happen? End of times. What's happening now? Exactly that. We're seeing more converts. You could ask any Bedin all over the world that deals with conversions. There are more conversions now than any other time in history. An extraordinary amount of conversions. I deal with it on a daily basis. It's unbelievable. So as a matter of fact, this is exactly a nevoah that's coming true as we speak. It's a prophecy that's coming true as we speak. That Hashem is fulfilling the promise that He made to the Girim and what He said in the Torah. That he's going to send us to the four corners of the world for the good of helping us spread the, spread the world, to help us convert people. Because if we were all in Israel, and there was a bunch of converts in America, a bunch of converts in Africa, a bunch of converts in you know, different places around the world, we wouldn't be able to help them. But because we're in America, because we're in Australia, because we're in pretty much every corner in the world, you can find some, some Jew, we're able to actually convert people. So anyone that goes against such a thing is not only going against the prophecy of the end of times, but it's going against Hashem Himself. Uh, and this is just pure foolishness. Well, yeah. Uh, is it possible, because I learned this when, when I was uh, a, a little kid, I learned that uh, maybe you have to discourage uh, a boy discourage because to see if he is actually sincere. Yeah. So Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch in Alachot Gerim, the first three Alachot talk about how conversions used to work. First three Alachot, I mean, there's obviously many Alachot of Gerim, but in the first three you'll see how, how, how conversions used to work. Conversions in the old days used to be done in one day. One day. Not uh, three years, not ten years, not five years. One day. A guy comes to the sages, and you see several stories in the Gemara. Uh, the Goyim, there's three stories in Gemara Masechet Shabbat and there's several other places in the Torah uh, where you see the converts or Goyim coming to the sages and saying, I want to be Jewish. And there's a few famous stories with Bet Shammai, Bet Hillel, Shammai and Hillel. Three different Goyim came to Shammai. They told me one guy said, I want to learn the entire Torah on one foot. 
Shammai didn't have enough, he didn't have patience for such people. He thought he was making a joke of the whole thing. He kicked him out. He said, go, go find yourself a new friend. So he went to Hillel. Hillel had the ultimate amount of patience. Anytime you talk about patience in the Torah, you talk about Hillel. Hillel says, okay, no problem. And Baruch Hashem, he converted them. And there's a story, three different stories of three different gerim that they converted. Um, and actually all three of these gerim end up getting together. And uh, they, they all become righteous, righteous uh, Jews. Now, the Shulchan Aruch says that when someone comes to you and says, I want to be a Jew, the, you're supposed to discourage them, but not like they discourage them today. Today, the uh, people think that it's alacha, that you have to say, no, we're not going to help you, and close the door in their face. And you're supposed to do that three times. This is 100% false. That's not the alacha. It became somewhat of a minag in some places, but it's not a lacha, and it's actually not even recommended. It's not even recommended. What the alacha actually says, you're supposed to discourage them in a way where you explain to them how hard it is. Meaning, the Shulchan Aruch says, you have to tell them, listen, you know, we are the persecuted people. Pogrom was just a few hundred years ago. They killed millions of us. You know that, right? Yes. You know, Nazi Germany, they killed six million of us. Six million Jews. They killed a bunch of other people too, but six million of us. You know that, right? Yes. You know that last week you drove a Shabbat, no problem. You can do drive whatever you want. If you drive next week, if you convert now, you drive next week on Shabbat, Sanhedrin sees you, they witnesses everything, death penalty. They kill you. There's no like, you know, three strikes and you're out. You can't drive on Shabbat anymore. You know that. I know. You know, last week you ate chilev. It's okay. Now you eat death penalty. Yeah. You show him some of these things that are hard mitzvot. He says, yes, on the spot. This is all interview on the spot. Guy came right now. He says, yes, they convert him on the spot. That's what Shulchan Aruch says. Convert him on the spot. The only machloket, the only debate, is whether they convert him on the spot, um, meaning in a sense where it's completed the same day or it's completed after he does Brit Milah. Because... Usually, the goyim in previous days didn't have Brit Milah. So Brit Milah, you have to heal. Usually it takes about a month to heal. So the only debate is, do they wait for his Brit... They, they do a Brit Milah that same day, and they wait for it to heal, and then he goes to the mikveh. So that's 30 days difference. Could be a little less, but it could be 30 day difference. So is the conversion finished after the mikveh, or is it finished that same day? Because he did Brit Milah. That's the debate. Either way, if it's a woman, convert same day. Bottom line is, it's not like it is today. The original halacha is not like it is today. The reason why is because there have been many fake converts that have ruined it for everyone. There have been many fake converts in different communities that converted for money, converted for different reasons that have ruined it for everyone, plus the birth of reform and conservative Judaism that have completely ruined uh, Judaism, within Judaism. So the rabbis have decided, the, the, the wise rabbis have decided to make sure that when someone is converting, they're actually ready to be a Jew, not just for today, but just for, for, for every day, forever. And therefore, they need to make sure that they have a life. They're changing their life. They're, you know, they're acclimating to the life. It's not just knowledge that you can learn over a couple of months. It's also a lifestyle change. You know, modesty for women, modesty for men, learning Torah for men and women every day, 
eating kosher every day, not just in the house, but also outside of the house, because Hashem is inside the house and outside the house. Um, you know, being a kosher person, and so on and so forth, actually living a kosher life. And if you're already in a relationship, if you're already in a relationship, then obviously you have to make major changes, meaning you can't be together for that time. Now, everyone knows, everyone's realistic, and everyone knows that they can't know what's going to happen outside of the office. Meaning, you could come tell the rabbi, yeah, yeah, we separate, we separate, but the rabbi is not an idiot. He knows you go home and you're probably going to be with your girlfriend anyway. So at the very least, the real person will try not to at least be intimate. Not to be intimate for the time of the conversion. Obviously, it all depends on Yirat Shemaim. If Hashem sees you're sincere, He'll make enough miracles to make your conversion happen very quickly. If Hashem sees that you're not ready, for whatever reason or another, it could take 10 years. So I tell people all the time that when it comes to conversion, it's, there's really no timing. With me, what I do, I bring them to the Bedin, I'm the sponsoring rabbi, and so on and so forth. But I tell them there's no timing. There's no time. The timing depends on you. How sincere you are. How serious you are about conversion. Meaning, if you're going to study everything I tell you you're going to study, and you study it seriously, you attend all the shiurim, you watch all the shiurim if you can't attend because you live far away, uh, you are serious about Torah. You make all the necessary life changes. You move to a Jewish community. You watch, uh, you watch your, what you eat. You watch your behavior and so on and so forth. You make all the necessary changes, both the behavioral part as well as the studying part, what you learn. The conversion can take less than a year if you're ultra serious. If you're not serious, a thousand years will not be enough. A thousand years will not be enough. And the reason why is because when it comes to converts... As much as I love them, as much as I, I want to help them, I want to help converts, not fakers. So by the time we arrive at the Bedin, they have to be more religious than any Jew in America. They have to be more religious than any Jew in Israel. They have to be the most religious people in the world. I'm not bringing somebody that's still doubting whether J.C. Penney is a, is a Mashiach. I'm not bringing somebody to the Bedin if they're still doubting whether they want to keep Shabbat or not. Or they're doubting whether the skirt should be covering the knee or, or it should cover more. You know, so I'm not, I'm not bring, bringing people that are still have doubts. They have doubts, you're not ready. So that's, that's, that's the simple rule that I have. There's no money, there's no nothing. There's money, you have to pay the bedin, not me. But the point is, is that when it comes to converts, you have to do everything you can to help them because in essence, you're helping Am Yisrael grow. You're helping a prophecy come true and you're helping the Mashiach come. You're bringing the Mashiach. So when we reject converts, we're doing the opposite. All of the things I just mentioned, you're doing the opposite. Your Mashiach stays further. The, uh, you know, everything, everything is the opposite. So, um, and actually I'll give you guys a chidush uh, that I just uh, learned yesterday, a sipul, a story I heard about Rav Avadia. Uh It's really extraordinary. It talks about the end of times. And then we'll, uh, we'll start with the Mishnah. Any other questions or should I just start? Good. Wasting seed? Yeah. What do you mean? Who says this? No. There's no leniencies whatsoever when it comes to wasting seed. There's no prosec in the history of Judaism 
that was ever lenient about wasting seed. Wasting seed is 100% forbidden. The Shulchan Aruch literally calls it the biggest sin in Judaism. The biggest sin in the entire Torah. And he puts it, the Rabbi Yosef Karo puts it in a, in, a, in, a, in a simple words, so you understand. He says it's like you took all the sins of the entire Torah and you violated all of them together. Even though you can't even make all the mitzvot together. You have 613 mitzvot, you can't do all of them together, but you can sin against the entire Torah in one way. How? Waste seed. You sinned, you, you made all the sins of the Torah in once. That's wasting seed. Where do you get it from? Rambam. Rambam says the same exact thing. So there's no leniencies when it comes to wasting seed. Um, as far as the, uh, the uh, issue, the only leniency or, or debate, if you will, it's not a leniency, the only debate that you have two sides to is whether it's as bad for Jews, uh, for non-Jews as it is for Jews. Meaning, for Jews, it's 100% Isul. It's 100% not allowed. There's no leniency. There's no uh, 50-50. There's nothing. The, uh, when it comes to non-Jews, there is another thought. There is a debate where they say that it's also not allowed for non-Jews, but is it not allowed as much as it is not allowed for Jews? Or is it just considered disgusting in the eyes of Hashem? Because if it's not allowed uh, for non-Jews as it is for Jews, then you have to understand, for, for Jews that are wasting seed b'mezid, when they're wasting seed on purpose, they know it's not allowed and they still do it, they are going, uh, according to Rashid Chochmah, the Masechet uh, Geinom, the, uh, they go to the worst part of Geinom and never leave. The Gemara in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 17, uh, talks about these people and says that even when the Mashiach comes, Parts of Gehenom will end, and their Gehenom will not end. There's three different types of sinners. One of them is wasting seed on purpose. So, for a Jew that wastes seed, there's no leniency. For a non-Jew, the leniency is, is it as bad, or is it just disgusting in the eyes of Hashem? And he gets a punishment, but not as great. That's the only debate. But as far as not allowed, everybody says not allowed. Yeah. Go ahead. Learn from Noah also. Uh, I heard more from Onan. But Onan, you're talking about a case where Yibum is involved. Uh, this guy purposely spills anything, so he's just taking advantage of this woman. It, it's, a, it's a very different scenario. It's not just... Uh, so how, how is that possible that this is like the worst sin in the world and the Torah doesn't even one time say explicitly, don't do this? Now, okay, now, if I show you that it does say it, and it says it even before and on on. Will that be good? I'll show it to you. I'll show it to you. So, the, um, we talked about it in last week's shiur. Last week's shiur, Parashat Noach. Last week's shiur, we saw that Hashem said that it was a corrupt, a corrupt generation, destroyed the world. The story goes where there was uh, stealing going on, but in reality, the Chidush we talked about last week, last Wednesday, we did a shiur in uh, Miami, uh, actually down the street here, 
Um, and say that the real sin, according to Chazal, according to the Zohar Kadosh, according to the Arizal, uh, and several other places we talked about, um, the real corruption that uh, made Hashem decide that this is a corrupt generation that has no recovery was not stealing like somebody, like Joe stole 50 bucks from Steve. It was when they started wasting seed. So that's why after Hashem, um, uh, that's why the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says that when a, when a male touches their male member, when they're going to urinate, it's like they are bringing in the mabul. They're bringing in the mabul. Why? Because when you get become too comfortable with your own body, it eventually leads to wasting seed without even doing tshuva for it. So uh, we uh, we have a clip that's going to go on Bezat Hashem maybe later t- tomorrow or the, from that specifically talks about the wasting seed chiddush we talked about last week. But just for the sake of answering this question now, is uh, this is before Eren Onan. Eren Onan was the second time the Torah talks about wasting seed. The first time is in Parashat Noach. After Hashem uh, brought the Mabul, destroyed the world, He gave Noach the ability to do tshuva, to rebuild the world. Now how do you do tshuva for a world that's empty? He says, don't repeat the same sin. So I'm going to give you Sheva Mitzvah Bnei Noach. I'm going to give you seven laws of Noach. Now, one of the laws is do not murder. One of the laws is do not murder. But in reality, the do not murder is much more extensive than do not murder. Just like the Ten Commandments. When they say don't, st- don't steal, it's not really don't steal from the store. It's not really don't steal from the store. What does it mean? It's, it means don't kidnap. Don't kidnap a person. That's what it means. So the Shev Mitzvah B'nai Noach is much more extensive than just don't murder. What does it mean? In... Parashat Noach, chapter 9, verse 6. To literally explain this verse, it says, Shofech Dam. Shofech Dam means spilled blood. Shofech Dam Adam spills blood of a person. Ba'adam. So now we're saying person twice. Why? It says, Spilling of blood of a person within a person, his blood will be spilled. Meaning, someone that spills the blood of a person within a person, his blood will be spilled, is actually referring to someone who wastes seed. If it, if the Torah was just talking about just spilling blood, he should have only said, Shofich Dam. Or it could have been accentuated by saying, Shofich Dam Adam, blood of a person. But once you go into the per, into the point of saying Shofech Dam Adam Ba Adam, Chazal explained to us this is specifically referring to spilling seed. Why? Because this is what caused the Mabul. This is what was the that's it. I've had it with you moment for Hashem, and that's why the very next verse, verse seven, Hashem says, "How do we do tshuva for this? First, don't sin." Second is do mitzvah. So it says, Shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam damo yishafech ki b'tzelem Elohim asayet ha'adam. So that's the, don't do this, don't spill the blood of a man within a man because your blood will be spilled because in the image of Hashem, uh, Hashem created man. V'atem pu'ubu shirtzu ba'aretz u'buba. And it says in you, multiply. So if there wasn't enough proof with those three words, that he's talking about seed, we have even an additional support on the very next verse, because they're always connected. Hashem says, by the way, multiply. Multiply meaning 
make, uh, make more babies, be fruitful and multiply. So from here is actually the first source in the Torah that we actually talk about uh, wasting seed, uh, being a forbidden both for Jews and for non-Jews. Both for Jews and for non-Jews. And the reason why it's so bad is because this is before even the Ten Commandments. This is for all of mankind. This goes against all of creation. When someone wastes seed, they're killing neshamot. They're dafka, destroying Hashem's creation. They're destroying the world. I did a three and a half hour shiur in New York about two years ago. It's a very, very popular shiur, Baruch Hashem, uh, about wasting seed, providing, I think, no less than uh, maybe 65, 75 different sources in the Torah, talking about the significance of wasting seed. The problem and the reason why perhaps you didn't know before this conversation is because in the English language it's just not taught. It's simply not taught. It's not taught in yeshivot. It's not, in most yeshivot it's not taught. It's not taught in kolim. It's not taught in English books. It's simply not taught. In Hebrew it is. In English it's not taught. And, and uh, oh Hashem, I mean it's definitely a schut, but I became... Uh, apparently the number one person that talks about this topic in English language, uh, as far as the quantity, there's only three rabbis that have mentioned it that I know of, uh, in the English language, myself, Rav Mizrahi, and Rabbi Alona Nava, but out of, uh, let's say, six or seven hours worth of material that's online uh, in lectures about wasting seed, I'm about 80% of it. So it's, a, it's simply not taught, even though it's, the, it's one of the three biggest sins in Judaism, in this generation, it's considered politically incorrect. So that's why there are many books about this. Uh, like, for example, by Rabbi Aaron Arata. Rabbi Aaron Arata was Kodesh Kodeshim, spoke about this topic extensively, uh, said this is the tikkun for the generation, this is the tikkun before the Mashiach, and so on and so forth. Um, but you won't find one of his books in, uh, in, in, in English. Uh, in Rashid Chokhmah, in Masechet Gehenom, and all other places, and in, in the whole section of Yirat Shemaim talks about wasting seed, talks about how significant it is. They haven't translated it to English. You know, so, unfortunately, there, there's very little material in English about this topic, but nonetheless, it is a huge, huge chumrah. Yeah? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean he gets he gets he gets a huge reward, but he can't be a mechalal shabbat though. Right, he can't like he can't say, listen, I'm not going to waste seed, but I'm not, I'm never I'm never going to learn Torah, I'm never going to keep kosher, I'm never going to. So yes, of course, he gets the reward as if he kept all of the mitzvot. So, so it's Yes, this is actually you get it from a gemara in uh, the uh, Yosef Tzadik. Yosef Tzadik, that's where they learn from. There's a, yes, there's a, lot, there's a lot more. Nothing is that pashut. Nothing is that pashut. Nothing is that simple. Where just because you go to Brit Milah, then uh, all your sins are erased. No. So, uh, first of all, it's a, uh, you, it's a zgulat to go to Brit Milah if it's a kosher Brit Milah. Unfortunately, in today's world, there's very, very few that are Brit Milahs that you should go to because there's men and women there and uh, there's immodesty there. And usually it's, uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a place for, a, uh, for you to watch your eyes. It's the opposite. 
I have one Avrech that told me that uh, he had a Brit Milah and he wanted to invite some of his family members and he invited people, even some people he hasn't seen in a long time and he says one of his uh, family members that apparently is Chiloni, is a secular, she came with a dress that barely covered anything. Barely covered anything and she runs to him, wants to give him a hug. She goes, wow, look, I bought this especially for the Brit Milah. I bought this dress that's like a bikini especially for the Brit Milah. People are so clueless today. They don't know what's right and wrong sometimes. So that's a problem. Uh, the other thing is that you have to have the, the people give kavod for sandak. Sometimes they give kavod to family members, to friends, to people like that. They're not exactly the most righteous people. So the sandak has to be a uh, very righteous person. Uh, if you go everything righteous, everything is good. It's not necessarily going to you know, wipe out all your sins, but it's definitely a very good skula to get your blessings heard and, and, uh, and so on. But it's not, you're not, it's not Yom Kippur. It's not Yom Kippur. It's not Yom Kippur. Not Yom Kippur. You don't. You can't uh, be a murderer a day before and then uh, you go to Brit Milan and everything's okay. No, it's not so pashut. It's not. You hear a lot of things. A lot of people have heard that uh, J. C. Penny was the Mashiach. He's not. He's dead. He's in Gehenom. That all of the sins are erased. No, there's no source in the Gemara that says all of the sins are erased. Doesn't say. Doesn't say that all of the sins are great. Uh, right. So the Yawanevi doesn't come up with place in sins. It doesn't mean that all of your sins are going to be erased. Not Yom Kippur. Even Yom Kippur doesn't erase all your sins. Even Yom Kippur doesn't erase all your sins. So, Brit Milah is not going to erase all your sins. People like to say a lot of things. So, one of the things that people like to talk about a lot is Mashiach. Now, today, Baruch Hashem, we've uh, encouraged a lot of people to learn more Torah. Over the last few years, a lot of people have uh, started doing Tshuva, started learning Torah. Men, women, Jews, non-Jews, Baruch Hashem, a lot of good things. People are mamash getting ready for the Mashiach. Now, I heard something uh, just yesterday. The guy that actually made the video, uh, we do some work with him uh, from time to time. And uh, he sent me the video as soon as he made it, which was uh, a story that uh, Rav Mutsapi uh, just uh, published, apparently, recently. Um, and um, Rav Mutsapi is one of the G'dolei Adol in Israel, uh, also one of the rabbis that signed a letter against the uh, Christian missionary, but by the way, that we had it earlier this year. Anyway, uh, he says that uh, he heard a story directly from Rav Avadia, and uh, Rav Avadia told him that uh, one night he was studying until about 2 o'clock in the morning, and then he got tired, he went to sleep, and uh, he had a dream about the Mashiach. And he dreamt that the Mashiach came, and the Mashiach was at the Kotel Amaravi, the, uh, the Western Wall, and there were millions and millions of Jews at the Western Wall to the point where there was no room to breathe. There's much no room. Just millions of people from all over the world. Everyone came. The Mashiach came. The Mashiach is at the head, and uh, he's uh, you know he's he's raising a flag. Whoever's for Hashem is for me. You know, uh, much like an uh, interesting uh, thing. And uh, but then after that. He has a meeting with the Mashiach. And the dream goes where the Mashiach uh, tells Rav Avadya, I know that Am Yisrael is suffering. I know Am Yisrael is, uh, is having a very difficult time. But uh, the reason why I'm not coming is because there are many people that know Torah, but are not sharing it. They know Torah. They know a few things. They learn Torah. They go to Yeshiva. They go to Kolel. They're religious and so on but they're not sharing it. 
Go tell all of the Avrechim. Go tell all of the people in Yeshivot. Go tell all the people that are religious to go out there and do Kiruv. If they want me to come, if they want me to come, tell them to go out there. Go tell everybody that knows Torah to go do Kiruv. Go to people from house to house. Knock on doors. Start a Chukbait. Start a Shiur Torah in the houses. Don't, you don't have to be a big Shiur Torah, 500 people. Start a shiur, just teach them how to do tefillin. Teach them to eat kosher. Teach women how to talat mishpacha. Go to mikveh, and so on and so forth. Get people that know Torah to stop worrying about themselves. Everyone's trying to become the next Rav Kanievsky. Everyone's trying to become the next Dolado. Tell them to stop being so selfish and go do kiruv. That's what Mashiach told Rav Avadiyah. So, I didn't know about this story, but it just uh, just became uh, uh, famous. And it's very interesting to me, because I see that, oh uh, Hashem, a lot of guys become religious. They start learning Torah. Some of them decide to go to Kolel, leave their jobs, go to Kolel. Some of them just study on their own in their house. And uh, people are learning Torah. But for whatever reason or another, apparently we didn't have enough shurim about not being selfish. Not being selfish. In the Gemara, Masechet Abu Dazara, page 17, it says, anyone that learns Torah without an intention of teaching it is like someone that doesn't have a God. Why? Because the point of you learning Torah is not just for you to know it and for you to do it, it's for you to fulfill it. Part of you fulfilling it is teaching it. You can't just keep the Torah to yourself. So when you have 80% of Am Yisrael doesn't even do Kriyat Shema. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Doesn't do it. 80% Am Yisrael doesn't keep one of, the, one, of the, one of the covenants of the Torah, Shabbat. 80% of Am Yisrael doesn't eat kosher. You understand the significance here? 80% of your brothers and sisters are going against Hashem and they don't even know it for the most part. And you will go sitting there in your house with the coffee, with the bagel, you're dipping it, you should shiur Torah, oh yeah, Gemarat, ah, you should shiur Torah, you don't care, your neighbor is Mechalel Shabbat, your cousin Mechalel Shabbat, this one's going to gain home, chapter 7, this one's chapter 6, everyone, you don't care, no, no, I'm going to learn Torah myself. Gemarat says, you're like a person that doesn't have a God. Why? Because if you had a God, you would be like Him, meaning, you would emulate His behavior. Hashem only gives. He doesn't take, He doesn't get anything, He has everything. He only gives. So you're learning is Torah and you don't give anything? You learn the number one most important thing in this entire world and you don't even want to share it? Teach somebody. Show somebody. You can't teach. You can't speak. Support someone that can. Support Kiruv. Give out CDs. Share lectures. Do something. But don't think that just by you learning on your own, whether it's at Kolet or at home or Yeshiva or wherever, that's enough. It's not enough. Every single person in this room Every single person that's watching this year needs to know, this year, each person needs to get at least 10 people to do tshuva. Each person needs to get at least 10 people to do tshuva. Not one and think that you have ganede and everything's okay. Every person needs at least 10 people to start doing tshuva. Every person. Every person watching this. Why? There's no other way. It's not enough for each one of us just one. It's not enough. We don't have enough time. Every person needs to contribute time, money, resources, words, knowledge, something that's going to lead 10 people to do tshuva.
the only way the only way if every person said no no I'll try to work on my cousin the whole year I'll work on my cousin okay what if it doesn't work what if your cousin you worked on it 10 months it doesn't work 12 months didn't work 14 months didn't work 2 years you work on your cousin 2 years didn't work then what what about the rest of Amisai what about the people that are not your cousin leave them to die leave them to nothing so people have to stop being selfish that's the number one rule you need to learn from Hashem Barach. Now, of course, as I always tell you guys, anytime you want answers, anytime you want something connected to your life right at the moment, you look at the parasha. In this week's parasha, parashat Lech Lecha, it says, V'yomer Adonai el Avram, Lech Lecha, Me'artzecha, Me'moladecha, U'mibet Avicha, El Ha'aret Asher Arecha. Hashem Barach introduces us to Avram Avinu. He says, Hashem says to Avram, go for yourself from the land, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Chazal says, why did Hashem tell him, Lech Lecha, go for yourself? Why did you say, why did you say, go? Go. Why did he say, go for yourself? Go for yourself. What do you mean, go for yourself? Just tell him, go. Go to... Mexico, go to Arkansas, go somewhere else. Why is it go? Why is it go for yourself? Lech lecha. Why is it lech? Why? It says save yourself. Go to save yourself. Why? Everyone around you is Rashaim. You're not allowed to live amongst Rashaim. Rambam says if everyone's Rashaim and there's no hope of them doing tshuva, you have to move. If there's no community that has righteous people, move to the desert. Make the scorpion and the snake your neighbors. Better than that than being surrounded by Rashaim. You're not allowed to be surrounded by Prutzot, uh, by people that uh, don't know how to behave, people that go against the Torah on a regular basis in different ways, modesty issues, immodesty issues, all that stuff. Not allowed. You have to be in a Jewish community with righteous people. It's more expensive, I know. Hashem knows also. It's more difficult, I know. Hashem knows also. Not to compare. I know because Hashem says the point is, is that Hashem knows everything. And Hashem is going to provide Parnassah for everything. There's no excuses. So also for people that want to convert, that's one of the first things that they need to do. They need to move to a Jewish community. Without you living in a Jewish community, you cannot be Jewish. You cannot be Jewish. Why? You have to be part of a Jewish community. Even if you're a woman, and technically you don't have to go to Beknesset, you still have to live in a Jewish community. can't live in the middle of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Montana, and the horse and the cow is your neighbor. You have to live in a Jewish community. So, Hashem Yitbarach says to Avraham, move. Move away. Because everybody over there, that you didn't convert yet, that you didn't do Kiruvan yet, they're all Reshaim. They're going to stay that way. How do we know he did Kiruv? Because in uh, verse 5, it says the following. V'yikach Avraham et Sarai ishto, so Avram, Avram took his wife Sarai and Lot, his brother's son, and all their wealth that they have amassed, and the souls they made in Haran. What do you mean the souls they made? They made souls? The Avot, the Rabbi Natan, says that every time someone gets another person to do tshuva, Hashem Yitbarach says, you created him. 
It's like you became a partner with me in creation. You created that soul. Why? Because reshaim nichshavim metim bechayem. The reshaim are considered dead even in their life. Even when they're alive, guy could be alive, could be managing casino, managing a hotel, managing a big uh, pharmaceutical company. If he's considered rasha, wicked in the eyes of Hashem, meaning he goes against Hashem, he's a, if he's a Jew, he's a violator of Shabbat, or if he's an idol worshiper of some kind, if he's a rasha, Hashem considers him dead. Because the only life he has left is whatever time he has left in this world. After that, he's no lamaba. So real life only begins after this life. Hashem says he's considered dead. So when someone actually helps a person do tshuva, in essence, what are they doing? They're making him go from dead to alive. Hashem says you created him. You created him. And that's why he says to the prophet Jeremiah, Im if you bring a precious from someone that's uh, uh, not good, someone that's a uh, wicked, you will be like my mouth. Meaning, Hashem Baruch is telling us that if you get somebody else to do tshuva, your mouth will be like my mouth. Why is your mouth like my mouth? Because you're like me. I created man, and you created one. When you made somebody go from dead to alive because he did tshuva, it's like you created man. It's not Hashem that will do tshuva before they die. Well, I highly, highly, highly doubt that any Rav ever said that, uh, because that would go specifically against the Gemara, that would go against the Zohar, that would go against the Torah. You're obligated to do Kiruv. It's not, it's not a, uh, it's not a Chumra. It's not a law that just some people are supposed to do. To such an extent, the Gemara says that uh, Rebbe was jealous of his student Rabbi Chia, who was also his uh, cousin, I believe. He was, he was jealous of Rabbi Chia. Why? They ask Rabbi, why, why are you jealous of Rabbi Chia? He says, because him in Olam Abba, he can go from world to world the way he wants. Why? Because he's involved in Kiruv. When Rabbi found out what it means to help a person do tshuva, he left everything. He left everything he was doing, and he started looking for, for irreligious people. He started looking for secular people in the streets. It's not like today. It's not like today where pretty much almost every single person is not religious. In those days, it was tough to find an irreligious Jew. So he mamash went and started looking for non-religious people, and he found one that was actually a kofer, and he made him religious, and that made him content. But to uh, the, as far as getting people to do tshuva, it's not an opinion. It's da'at Torah. It's da'at Torah. You could ask any major rabbi, and as far as the quote that you're mentioning, I'm, I'm almost, I, haven't, I haven't heard it before, but I'm certain that the rav didn't say it.
I don't even know who it was or what it was. I'm certain he didn't say it because it would be against Da'at Torah. It would be against Da'at Torah. It would be against the Torah itself. It's not, it's not possible for someone not to want to get uh, Ba'alei Tshuva simply because it says that Ba'alei Tshuva are considered higher than from from birth. So to not help somebody be a Ba'al Tshuva, we're all Ba'alei Tshuva. Every single person is Ba'al Tshuva. Ba'al Tshuva is not going to come to you. Why would he come to you if he's if he's a if he doesn't know? He doesn't know he's missing it. If some someone that's the Rambam says that someone that's sinning, someone that's sinning against the Shem, he considers him spiritually sick. Why is he spiritually sick? Because in essence, you have a hand that feeds you, you have a Shem that feeds you, and you're spinning in his face. Obviously, you're crazy. Obviously, there's something wrong with you. If someone is feeding, if you're sick, you're a sick person, you can't move. And a nurse comes to you and she gives you food. What are you going to say? Thank you. At the very least, you're going to say thank you. You're not going to go, hey, start cursing her out. Why? Just say, okay, die then. Want to curse me out? Die. What are you going to do? Say thank you. At the very least, you're going to say thank you. If not, you're going to be quiet. You're definitely not going to go against the hand that feeds you. So someone that's sinning against the Shem, Rambam says he's spiritually sick. Spiritually sick. Now, when someone is sick, everything tastes the opposite to them. So, for example, when someone is sick, physically sick, something that's sweet doesn't always taste sweet. Something that's bitter doesn't always taste bitter. Something that's salty doesn't taste salty. One time, my wife, God bless her, uh, she, uh, she, she had a cold, and uh, we ordered pizza. And uh, she always likes to put some stuff on our pizza, and uh, she put a bunch of stuff, more than normal, on our pizza. And uh, she was enjoying it like it was the greatest thing in the world. And I was like, well, you got to have a bite. you got to have a bite out of this pizza. So, you know, seeing how much she's enjoying it, I took the pizza. And I took a bite. And immediately I spit the thing. And I wanted to throw the pizza across the room. It was like the worst. It was full of salt. It was like, mamas, like, uh, to me it was like poison. I'm like, what's wrong with you? She goes, why, it's delicious. I'm like, ah, he's sick. Sick, physically sick. So someone that is uh, physically sick, everything tastes the opposite to them. Someone that's spiritually sick, also, they think that their sins are good for them. They think that gambling is a good thing. They think that stealing is a good thing. They think that being a, an adulterer is. A, they think that their sins are good for them. They're spiritually sick, so to say that we should wait for that person to come to us is not a normal thing to expect from a person, because he doesn't know he's sick. Unlike physically sick, where you have symptoms, you have a cold, you have a, like right now. If you see my voice, you could see there's something wrong. When you're spiritually sick, you don't know there's something wrong. Why? Because everyone else is also spiritually sick. Everyone else is also sick. No one knows. There's only a few that know. So to say we're going to wait for all the sick people to come to us, that's a uh, not not a, not a real, realistic datoa. Uh, yeah. Okay, so waiting for them to want it. So, hey, so I'll, I'll give you an example from an atheist. There was an atheist, a very famous atheist, 
who was an extraordinarily successful businessman. Stupid as can possibly be for thinking that everything came from nothing. But he was an extraordinarily successful businessman to the point that he became a billionaire. And had he been alive now, he would probably be, I would say, probably the richest man in the world. And now this businessman, what made him successful? What was his thing? Did he, was he smarter than everybody else? No, not necessarily. But was he, uh, what? What was so special about him? He understood the consumer better than anyone else and understood that the consumer wants what you tell him to want. The consumer wants what you tell him to want. Not, he doesn't have an opinion. You tell him what his opinion is. Meaning, if one day you tell him, listen, today the greatest thing in the world is an iPhone. He's going to want an iPhone. If tomorrow you tell him the greatest thing in the world is, I don't know, uh, some uh, Google phone. He's going to want a Google phone. He's not going to want an iPhone before he knew that an iPhone existed. He's not going to know it existed. He's not going to want it. He's not going to want a computer before you told him that a computer exists. He's not going to want your program before he knew your program existed. He's not going to want it because he doesn't know it exists. You are going to create it and then you're going to convince him to want it. That was his genius. That's what made him successful, obviously, in the hands of Hashem, even though he was an atheist and didn't believe in the hands that feed him. And that's why the hand that fed him also killed him. Because with all of the billions that he had, he couldn't fix a simple liver. And his name was Steve Jobs. So if we're all going to wait for people to want to do tshuva, we might as well pack our bags and get ready for us to be punished also. Because no one is just going to wait and wait and wait and then one day wake up and say, you know what, I want to do tshuva. Let me look at my local rabbi. You have to tell them they want it. Why? Because you have to explain to them that they're missing something. They don't know that they're missing something. You have to understand, in the eyes of a secular person, being religious looks terrible. In the eyes of a secular person, you keeping Shabbat means you're losing one day out of the week. He doesn't understand, or she doesn't understand, that Shabbat is fun. Shabbat is a vacation. Shabbat is a part of Olam Abba. Shabbat is extraordinary. She doesn't understand that. They think, what do you do? You just eat, sleep. What's so much fun about that? Until you experience Shabbat like you're supposed to, it looks terrible. To him, kosher food looks limited. He says, I can eat cheeseburgers, this burger, and that burger, and this burger. Why would I eat the kosher food? He doesn't understand that when you have kosher food, it not only helps your body, it also helps your neshama. makes you spiritually healthy. You can now have a clearer brain when you're trying to learn Torah. He doesn't understand that to take time out every day to pray to God is a good thing. He thinks you're just wasting two hours, three hours of your day every day praying to something you can't even see. He doesn't understand what it means until you show him that when you pray, you feel significant. You feel like you're talking to the Creator. He doesn't understand that learning Torah is good for him. He's like, oh, I'm just going to learn Harry Potter. I'm going to learn history. I'm going to learn this. I'm going to learn that. What's so different about Torah? He doesn't understand that the Torah has both a physical and a spiritual impact on you. So until you tell him and show him, he's not going to know he wants it. He's not going to know he wants to do tshuva 
until he does it. Until he's shown. So if we're all waiting for people to want to do tshuva, we're in a bad, we're in a worse situation than I thought before we started this lecture. Yeah. Hard, not can't. Hard, yes. Hard, 100%. That's why the Zohar Kadosh says, if a person knew how significant it is in Shamayim to get a person to do tshuva, they would leave everything that they're doing in their life, their work, their life, their kids, their wife, their husband, their everything, they would leave everything. And they would chase a person for 70 years, seven, meaning a full life. They would chase a person, one person, 70 years, just to get that one person to do tshuva, and if they did it, their life was worthwhile. One person they're talking about in the Zohar Kadosh. One person, you get one person to do tshuva, he says in 70 years, your whole life, 70 years, now you can do, get people to do tshuva in the middle of the street. I get people to do tshuva every single day. Every single day somebody sends me a letter, I did tshuva. Why? I saw Shiu. I saw a lecture, I saw that. Somebody sent them that lecture. Somebody sent them that CD. Somebody showed them what I said. Sometimes it's not even what I said, it's something that somebody else said that we sent them. Sometimes it's the Kiruv package, sometimes it's, it's the CD from Rabbi Zrachi. Some, it's something. You get people to do tshuva every day. Every single day. Every single day you get people to do tshuva. You tell them you can't get people to do tshuva in seven years? You can't get people to do tshuva in seven months? In seven days? Hard? 100%. I have more enemies than this entire room put together. Including the people watching online. Hard? 100%. Satan hates me. <coughs> Not hates me because I did something personal. I'm stealing his employees. So I have a lot of tikkunim. Team Hashem, tikkunim non-stop. You, you just hear every one of them has a tikkun. Every one of them has problems. But they keep going. They're strong. Why? Because they understand what Torah Kedoshah says. Get somebody to do tshuva. The Torah says, you get a person to do tshuva, you get 310 worlds on Olam Abba. There's actually a section in Olam Abba that even a tzaddik gamu, someone that was born with the shas in his hands, born with the shas in his hands, you know that he died by heart. Rav Yashiv, Rav Kanievsky, Stipe Gaon. Tzaddik Gamu, his entire life, he's in yeshiva, he learned the entire thing by heart. 90, 120 years. He can't get into that section of Gan Eden. He can't get into that section of Olam Abba. Why? That's only for people that help people do tshuva. You, little old you, who just started doing tshuva a few years ago, only you're 20 years old, only 15 years old, only 30 years old, only 60, whatever you are, don't know nothing like the Stipe Lagoon, don't know nothing like the Kanievsky. You don't know like them. You could have a section in Olam Abba bigger than them. Why? Yep. Yeah, people do tshuva. This is not me. This is not my, I'm saying. It's not my opinion because I'm in this. This is, the Torah Ketosha says this. I made a whole lecture about this, or several lectures about this, with sources from the Torah. So, people need to understand that we learn about Kiruv from Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu, over here it says, they left, after Hashem told them to leave, they left. They brought their family. They brought their, you know, their, his nephew, his wife. He brought his money, brought his sheep, brought his cows, brought everything. But what else did he bring? He brought all of the souls that he made in Haran. So Chazal says, what does it mean he brought all of the souls they made in Haran? Rashi says, the souls refers to those whom he had, who they converted to become monotheistic, to have faith in Hashem. Avram converted the men, 
and Sarah converted the women. So here we see that each one of these people was as if Avram Avinu created them. Now, there's a big tikkun that Avram Avinu went through in his life. It says that all of the people, all of these souls, eventually fell off. All of these souls, eventually they went back and they didn't continue worshipping Hashem. Except one. Except one soul. Who was that soul? Eliezer. Eliezer was the son of Nimrod. Which, by the way, there's also another name. The real name of Nimrod. Does anyone know it? Nimrod, Nimrod, Arasha. Does anybody know his real name? That, that's how he got the name Nimrod. That's why it's not his real name. What's his real name? His real name is Amrafel. Nimrod's name is Amrafel. It's mentioned in chapter 14 of this week's parasha. And it says, Amrafel, Melech Shinar. And uh, it says that it happened in the days of Amrafel, king of Shinar. This is during the, the war of the uh, four kings against the five kings. And the uh, head of, uh, of, uh, of the team that, in essence, uh, of, of Amrafel, Amrafel is actually Nimrod. Gemara Maseret Iruvin, page 53a. says that Amrafel is really Nimrod. Why was he called Nimrod? Because Nimrod went against Hashem. Marad be Hashem. He went to war against Hashem. He made himself into an idol. He went, made himself into an idol. and uh, But he was smart enough that after he saw that Avraham Avinu was Ish Kadosh, he told the son, go be a servant for him, it's better than being a king with me. And he sent his son Eliezer to be with Avraham Avinu. And just to give you an idea of who we're dealing with here, is that Eliezer, according to Torah Kedoshah, got to a point where he's one of ten people that went to Gan Eden alive. He never died. He never died. And after Lot was taken, after they, they went to war, the four kings against the five kings, and uh, the uh, four kings won, and they because they knew that Lot, Avraham Avinu's uh, nephew, was Avraham Avinu's nephew, they said, let's kidnap him. So Avram went after them. Avram went to war against them. And it says, the Vayavo uh, Apalit. Apalit was Og, Melech Habashan. Vayavo Apalit, this is actually the source of what we know that Og was alive from the Mabul and was still alive after. They call him Palit because he ran away from the uh, war. He was one of the uh, uh, Rephaim that escaped the battle. Palit means fugitive. And there came the fugitive and told Avram, the Ivri, who dwelt in the place of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshkol and the brother of Anil, these being Avram's allies. He told them that they kidnapped Lot. And when Avram heard that his kinsman, meaning Lot, was taken captive, he armed his disciples who had been born in his house, 318. And he pursued them as far as Dan. So it says that Avram Avinu went to war against all four of these kings with what? With 318 
of his, of his people. But Chazal says he didn't actually have 318 people. What did he have? Eliezer. Eliezer, Gimatria, the numerical value of Eliezer, 318. So it was Avram and Eliezer. Eliezer got to a point where he was spiritually strong enough to kill all of them. Avram and him, they killed all four kings. Killed everybody. Eliezer, Gimatria, value, 318. So that's the level of Eliezer, of how he got to. That's the level of Avram. That's the student of Avram Avinu. He's the only one that stayed. Everyone else that used to be religious, they got them to do tshuva, they fell off. Why they fell off? Why they fell off? They stopped coming to Shulat Torah. They came, they followed, six months, a year, they did tshuva, they said, okay, I'm going to go study on my own. I'm going to go study on my own. I'm going to go to a different rabbi. I'm going to go to a different shiur. I'm going to go learn on YouTube. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to go to the fire that got me to do tshuva. I'm going to go on my own. I'm fine. I did tshuva. I keep Shabbat. I keep Tarat uh, Mishpacha. I keep. Fine. Eliezer knew it's not just the initial treatment, the initial shock that gets you to become alive. It's the follow-up. That's why he stayed. That's why he stayed, and that's why he got to become someone that's such a ish, ish kadosh that went to Gan Eden alive. Alvai that we go there dead, at least. He went, what? He, tra- he got trapped by a mountain? I don't know. Yitzhak Avinu tried to kill him? Kiddush. Look at Kiddush, I don't know. I don't know everything. I just know what I tell you. I haven't heard of that Midash. I haven't heard it. 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 No, he wasn't holier than Avraham. He was just as holy as he can get to. He got to the highest level he can possibly get to. Um, so here we see that Avraham understood the value of Kirub, understood the uh, power that it gives you both in this world and in the next. We also have another proof in this week's parasha that Avraham Avinu kept the entire Torah, where after the war, it says in a, uh, chapter 14, verse 20, uh, and Avraham Avinu says, and blessed is God the Most High. Uh, well, actually, they're saying to, to Avraham, blessed is God the Most High who delivered your foes into your hands. And Avraham, and he gave his tithe out of everything. So here, the uh, Torah says that after Avraham Avinu beat all of these people, he took all of their money and he gave 10% to Shem to the son of Noah, who was called Malkitzedek, also called Malkitzedek. He was like the Kohen Gadol. He was like the head, uh, head rabbi, and he gave him 10%. So here we see that Avraham Avinu was following the oral Torah already before Mount Sinai. So, now, all of this is a nice intro.
to the Mishnah. We see that Kiruv is something that is very much an uh, extraordinary part of our lives that we need to make, a, at least we need to make it an extraordinary part of our life. We see already from the days of Avraham Avinu, before the written and the oral Torah was officially given, Tam Yisrael was already followed by Avraham Avinu. Um, so we see that the Chachamim were not creating something out of thin air. Everything was has a source. Now, the problem today is that sometimes you have people that will learn Torah, and not because they want to follow what Hashem says, but instead they're looking for excuses. They're looking for gray areas. They're looking for ways to beat the system. They're looking for ways to beat the system. So the Ramban called these people Naval Birshuta Torah, despicable with permission from the Torah. So how do we get there? Sometimes these people do it intentionally. Uh, sometimes they do it not intentionally. Sometimes it's somebody that goes to, that's like, you know, just wants to sin. And he f- violates the Torah intentionally. He looks for gray areas and he says, oh no, listen, it's not clear here, so therefore I'm allowed to do this, this, and this. Like the guy that you said, uh, he's asking about wasting seed or he's asking about having sex with, uh, you know, Jews having sex with non-Jews. Is it allowed? Maybe it's not clear. I haven't seen it yet. And because he hasn't seen it, therefore it's allowed. Like people think that if they haven't seen something or they haven't learned something, therefore it must not exist. As if they know everything. Everyone thinks they know everything. Most people think, almost everybody, thinks they are much greater than what they really are. Most people have an ego issue and they think they're much smarter than they are, much better looking than they are. And in general, they just think they're much better than they are, much holier than they are. So if you tell them something that's a chidush, unless they accept you as a person that's going to provide them a chidush, a, a, you know, something new, unless they see you as someone that can provide such a thing, if they don't know you, they say, oh, no, I don't, think, I don't think that's true. Why don't you think that's true? Because I haven't heard it. I haven't heard it. Like one time we, when we talked about the, uh, the big rabbis passed a new halacha, that uh, wigs are not allowed, that are made from real hair. One rabbi in New York says, no, no, I think he made it up. He thought that I forged the the letter. And uh, I asked the guy that told me, why does he think that I forged the letter? First of all, I'm not the one that wrote the letter. My name is not even on the letter. And I didn't send him the letter. Why Why is he even connected to me? And he says, well, the only thing he says is, why didn't they come to me? Like, why didn't I know about this? Why is he the only one? Because I was publicizing it. I was publicizing the letter on the internet and so on, and this came out. And he says, why didn't these big rabbis let me know? Like, who is he? It's not like he's like a big rabbi. He's a nobody. So people think they're much greater than what they are. So if they don't know something, therefore it must not be true. So, so sometimes people violate the Torah because of their ego. But sometimes they violate the Torah because... They're lazy. They're lazy. So if someone is violating the Torah because of their ego, then obviously they're rasha. But what about the people that are violating the Torah because they're lazy? Just don't feel like studying. They don't feel like doing tshuva. They don't feel like learning all of the halachot Shabbat. I'm tired. I'd rather play video games. I'd rather watch sports. I'd rather uh, go walking in the park. 
feel like learning Torah. What about those people? So Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Eve Zair Betalmud, Sheshkagat Talmud Ola Zadon. Rabbi Yehuda says, be meticulous in study, meaning study of Torah, for careless misinterpretation is considered tantamount to willful transgression. I.e., it means if someone makes a careless mistake as a result of their studying or lack thereof, their accidental sin, their shgaga, is not considered shgaga. It's considered like they did it on purpose. Meaning, the same law of the land applies in Shemaim. What law is that? Every country, whether it be America, Israel, or anywhere else in the world, a civilized world, has a law. Ignorance of the law does not absolve you from the law. Meaning, the fact that you did not know that we have a speed limit of 65 miles an hour does not mean that you're not bound by that law. Doesn't mean that you're allowed to drive 90 because you didn't know there's a 65 miles an hour speed limit. The fact that you didn't know that we don't allow murder does not allow you to murder. The fact that you don't know that we don't allow to do drugs does not mean that you're allowed to do drugs. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance does not help you. Not in the law of the land, not in the law of Shemaim. This is the Mishnah in Avot. Rabbi Yehuda is telling you, if you're going to be one of those people who says, listen, doesn't it say somewhere, didn't I hear from somewhere, that if you don't know, then it's considered accidental? It's considered accidental. If you don't know, you can't be judged like you go, you don't, you know. That only applies if you don't know unintentionally. Meaning, if you're studying every day, you're trying your best, you're studying every day, you're trying to do the will of Hashem, but you just get, didn't get to that Allah yet. You didn't get to it yet. You have, let's say, for example, I gave the example a few times, let's say the Yalkut Yosef on Alachot Shabbat. Yalkut Yosef on Alachot Shabbat is three different books, three different big books. And let's say you're studying, but you didn't get to the third book, which is the one that has the issues about Pikuach Nefesh. What are the things that you're allowed to violate Shabbat for? You didn't get to it. You already read one and a half book. You didn't get to the third book yet. You're on the second book. You didn't get to it yet. And let's say the Mashiach shows up, or you go already, it's time for you to go to Shemaim, go to Gan Eden. But you made a few violations that are in the third book in your life. They're not going to judge you that you did them on purpose. Why? Because you just didn't get to it. You tried, but you didn't get there yet. But if you just decide, I don't feel like studying, and instead of studying Allahot Shabbat, you read comic books. Or instead of studying Allahot Shabbat, you played video games. Or you watched the uh, NBA Finals. Or you watched uh, a bunch of people beat themselves up on TV on the NFL or UFC or boxing or something else. Instead of learning Torah, that's what you did with your time all the time. Not just once in a blue moon. All the time. Hashem says, this is not accidental. This is purposeful sin. Why is it purposeful sin? Because you purposefully did not learn Torah. When you could have. I gave you time to do what you need to for your life. You need to work. You need to eat. You need to drink. You need to go to the bathroom. You need to be with your wife. You need to be with your husband. Fine. I gave you time for that. But then there's 24 hours in a day. There's some time you need to learn Torah. You didn't dedicate time to learn Torah. And that time you have for Torah. You dedicate to shtiyot, to nonsense. Your sins are on purpose.
No. If once once a person does tshuva, they're considered a baby. Same thing like a convert. A convert or a baal tshuva are not considered like somebody that was supposed to, that like someone that they knew everything already. So, for example, someone that was born into a religious family is going to be judged differently than someone that just woke up to the Torah at the age of thirty. Well, you lived in like uh, in in uh, in the Greenland with with the with the uh, with with the bears, and there's no people. And he doesn't know he's Jewish. No, then he's anus. He's tinok shenishba. Then he's a tinok shenishba because his best friend is the is the polar bear, and the penguin. He's not considered. He's not considered anything. He's, he's considered you know something that Hashem made as uh, just for just to make this uh, example of yours, but it doesn't actually exist in real life. You know, it's like for example, people that are. Anti uh, uh, that are, are anti-abortion or they're pro-abortion. They're pro-abortion. So what they try to do is they tell people that are anti-abortion to tell people you shouldn't kill babies. They're real life, even though it's inside the woman's stomach, it's still a very much a living being. The fact that you can't see it does not change the fact that it's a living being. After forty days, it's one hundred percent a living human being. 40 days, has neshama, has everything. The fact that you can't see it because there's a stomach, the skin that's covering it is irrelevant. If you took it out of the stomach, you see it move. Move, it sees, it hears, has everything. But people say, no, no, you should allow people to have abortions because maybe the woman was raped by her father and she's, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and she, just, she doesn't want to have the baby because it will remind her of uh, this, uh, you know, of, of this situation our whole life. In reality, in reality, this is like the example that they like to give you to make life seem like it's the most miserable situation in the world, as if this stuff happens every day. Okay? Uh, to that one example where someone was raped by a family member and they don't have any money and they're crippled and they're uh, homeless, and they're the worst, and they're going to be remembered, they're going to be, you know, tarnished for the rest of their life, that's a one in a zillion. The vast majority of people that are having abortions had intimacy with someone because they wanted to, they didn't want to get pregnant, but they wanted to have sex. That's why they're having an abortion. They're not having an abortion because their father raped them, or because their uncle, or their brother, or some horrible crazy example that people like to give as the banner example of why you should kill a million people a, a week. So that's the thing. The example of the person that lives in, in, in Greenland and his best friend is the polar bear and his cousin is the, is, is, the, uh, is the penguin, yes, if that exists, he's absolved from all mitzvot. Does that example actually exist in real life? No. It doesn't actually exist in real life. If someone does, don't worry about it. Hashem will know how to deal with them. Somehow Hashem is going to take care of him. I'm sure Hashem knows how to run the world. He's been here for a while. But for the rest of us that live in civilization, everyone knows what Judaism is. Even the Goyim know what Judaism is. As a matter of fact, people celebrate their hatred for Judaism. Sometimes even when they're Jewish. As a matter of fact, recent research that I did confirmed that the biggest missionaries in the world to Christianity, to idolatry of, 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 uh, of Christi- Christianity are actually Jews, unfortunately. 
So, people hate Judaism. They celebrate it. Therefore, they know it exists. Whether they're secular, or they're anti, or they're religious. So, for a person to live their whole life in modern society, in a civilized world, outside of Greenland, outside of the polar bear's neighborhood, he knows that Judaism exists. Therefore, he knows that there's something called Shabbat. Therefore, he may not know all the rules, he may not know all of the halachot, but he knows something exists. He knows that there is a God. Or at least that people believe that there's a God. He knows that there is certain mitzvot. At least you know there's something. That person cannot play the ignorant card. He can't say, no, no, I wasn't religious because uh, I wasn't born religious. And the reason why is because the biggest, most important people that ever existed in Judaism and in the world at large, weren't also not born religious. One of them, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, the Gemara Masechet Psachim says, page 49, that Rabbi Akiva wasn't just not religious. He hated religious people. Hated them. Before he did tshuva, he hated religious people. He would want to bite them like a donkey bites. And the students ask him, no, you mean like a dog? He says, no, 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 like a donkey. When a dog bites, he just bites the flesh. When a donkey bites, he crushes the bone. That's how much I hated religious people. So, Rabbi Akiva, uh, the Shmaya uh, Naftalion, Shmaya Naftalion were both converts. They were both born into idol-worshipping families. They weren't uh, born into tzaddikim. These people became the Avbadedin, the heads of the Bedin and generations before Rabbi Akiva. Before Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is the student of the student of the students of Shmaya Naftalion. Rabbi Meir Balanes came from converts. It doesn't end. It doesn't end. The biggest convert in history. The biggest convert in history. Male. Who was it? Itro. Itro. Itro before Onkelos. Itro. Itro was the biggest idol worshiper in the world. He tried all idol worship. Everything. Everything. If it moved or it didn't move, he worshipped it. Tried it, didn't work out, tried something else. Section. This week is idol worshipping this. This week idol worship. He tried everything. Eventually became Baal Tshuva, became a tzaddik, converted to Judaism, got to a point where him and his sons all got to a level of having Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach HaKodesh. So, they also didn't know. They also weren't religious. They also had tikkunim. You can't play that card forever. That's what this Mishnah is about. That's what this Mishnah is about. It says, Talmud, Talmud, Zadon, to claim this, uh, this oh, you, uh, you made an accidental sin, and uh, because you didn't know, you can't play the ignorance card. You can't play it. So, the uh, few things we learned, well, I mean, we already have gone through a lot, but we'll try to finalize quickly. First and foremost, who is this Rabbi Yehuda? Why do we need to listen to him? Anytime it mentions in the Torah, in the uh, Gemara, Rabbi Yehuda, it's referring to Rabbi Yehuda Barilai. Rabbi Yehuda Barilai. Rabbi Yehuda Barilai had two major rabbis, really three, but uh, two are specifically mentioned. One was Rabbi Akiva. Was his rabbi. The second one in, uh, is Rabbi Tarfon. Gemara Masechet Megillah, page 20, talks about Rabbi Tarfon. And also the third one is Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. 
Uh, but the two main ones, and when in his childhood was Rabbi Tarfon, and then later on was Rabbi Akiva. And the main reason we mention this is simply because both of these rabbis were, at the time they were teaching him, were extraordinarily rich. The uh, Gemara says that Rabbi Akiva got to become one of the richest pe- people of the land out of six different sources of money. Kalba Savua, his, uh, his father-in-law was one source, and then several other than uh, one of his wives, and so on and so forth. He got rich in several different ways. After Rachel died, he remarried, and he, uh, and he uh, got wealth from her, and so on and so forth. So he got to become very, very rich. Uh, Rabbi Talfon also became extremely rich. Why do we mention this? Because Rabbi Yehuda, at the point of his life, actually was in a generation of poverty. To such an extent that the Gemara says that he lived in a generation where uh, in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 20a, says that he lived in a generation where six people would share one, one talit. Six people share one talit. Today it's one person has six taliot. Baruch Hashem. But he had all the excuses in the world to not only not be religious, to be anti. His rabbi was rich. He did all the things. He listened to everything his rabbi says. He had nothing. At one point, the Gemara says he had to share a jacket. It was only one jacket for him and his wife. For the whole house. One jacket. They had to share it. Whoever was leaving the house could wear the jacket. If he didn't have the jacket, he couldn't leave the house. So Rabban Gamliel uh, heard about this and wanted to give him a coat, wanted to give him something. And Rabbi Uda says, no. Nedarim says, he said, no, no, I don't want to enjoy this world. I can get it, I don't want to enjoy this world. Meaning, he understood the significance of money. His rabbis had money. But he understood even more learning Torah from poverty. Learning Torah with all of the tikkuni, all the excuses in the world of why you shouldn't learn. I have pain, I don't have any money, I have stress, this, that. Who doesn't have excuses for learning Torah? Who can learn Torah as much as they want here? Anybody? I have no tikkunim, I have no problems when you learn the Torah? Everybody has a problem with the Torah. You want to learn Torah, all of a sudden somebody calls you. You want to learn Torah, all of a sudden somebody's knocking on the door. Somebody needs your time. All day they don't want anything from you. You learn Torah, they want something from you. All of a sudden you're tired. All of a sudden you're hungry. All of a sudden you need to go to the bathroom. So he had all the excuses in the world, even more than us. Why? He had no money. But he got to the point where anytime it mentions Maasebe Chasid in the Gemara, the Gemara Baba Kama 103b says it's talking about Rabbi Yehuda. Anytime it says something happened with a certain Chasid, it doesn't say the name. Something happened with a certain chassid, meaning a certain pious person, a special pious person, higher than normal. Not chassid like today, everyone that has payas and a black hat is a chassid. Chassid in the Torah means someone that does above and beyond the law. Whatever there's alakha, he does more. Whatever Hashem wants, he does more. So, it's like, you're supposed to come, pray, in the morning, at 6 o'clock in the morning, he shows up at 3 a.m. Why? He wants to learn a few hours of Torah before, before he starts the day. 
Everyone says, the, the rabbi says, you should give tzedakah, you should give maaser, at the very least, you should give 10% of your money for, for tzedakah, for kiru, for, for Torah, for something. He, no, he says, no, I'm giving chomesh, I'm giving 20%. That's chassid. The attire, as far as black and white, all that stuff, that's only in recent generations. That didn't exist, exist back then. So it says, any time it says, maaser bechassid, that a certain event happened for some pious person, some chassid, it's talking about Rabbi Yehuda. So just so you understand, the, the Gemara is almost 2,700 pages. 2,700 dapim, which is really 5,400, double. There are, I mean, an endless amount of alachot. I don't even know how many alachot are in there, how many stories are in there, how many people are in there. I mean, it's It's endless. You could read it a thousand times and still get more and more chidushim and still not know 1% of what's in there. There are hundreds, hundreds of alachot that were made from, uh, from um, Rabbi Yehuda, over 600 as a matter of fact, according to this info over here, says over 600 alachot are quoted in the Mishnah in his name. 600 alachot specifically by Rabbi Yehuda. So the Gemara is extensive. The Mishnah is extensive. He's one of the five students that Rabbi Akiva restarted the Torah world with. One of the five students. Meaning our entire oral Torah, he's one of the people that we depend on. In addition to that, anywhere in the entire Mishnah, it says, Maaseh Bechasid, it's talking about him. You know what kind of description that is? That's like in, in, in any time you say Eved Hashem, anyone who says servant of Hashem, immediately you think Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, Eved Hashem. Anytime you mention Maaseh Bechasid, Rabbi Yehuda. Imagine that kind of description. If Hashem, if, I mean, you think about it, if the if a king of flesh and blood even knows your name, it's already a big deal. For him to write you in a book, whew, for him to give you a description in the book, on top of that, Imagine. So that's Rabbi Yehuda, and that's despite the poverty that he had. He uh, was famous for saying a few different things, a few examples I'll give you because we're running out of time. Uh, you could know a man by, based on his uh, kiso, on koso, kiso, vikaso, based on his cup, his pocket, and his anger. Meaning you can measure a man based on how he behaves once he's drunk, Based on how he behaves as far as his money, if he's uh, generous or stingy. And based on how he behaves once you get him angry. A lot of people look good. A lot of people dress good. Sometimes you go to Beknesset, everyone looks like a Biakiva. Everyone looks like a little Moshe Rabbeinu. Especially like during the Yamim Noaim, during the holidays. Everyone wears a talit. Everyone looks tzaddik. They just came from Mount Sinai. Wow, psh, da, 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 amazing. Somebody steps on somebody's foot. All of a sudden, hey, oh, hey, all of a sudden you have World War Seven. So, Rabbi Yudah says you have to look at a few things in order to know where somebody stands. Number one, how does he behave? When there's liquor in front of him. Is he one of these fools that gets drunk? Or is he a person that just, you know, takes a yain, you know, for kiddush, has a little sip, knows when 
because too much, too little, knows how to control his, uh, his liquor. He knows when to drink, when not. People that like to drink on a regular basis, a lot of people think that uh, becoming drunk is a part of Shabbat. It's not a part of Shabbat. It's absolutely not a part of Shabbat. Some of these keilot that have special drinking binges on Shabbat, that's a chilul Hashem. It's not Shabbat. To tell people that Judaism is connected to being a drunk fool is mamash chilul Hashem. The people say, no, no, we're trying to bring him to shul, so we'll bring in a bunch of liquor. It's better not bring them. Why? Because what do they do? They come, they become drunk, and they show up to, uh, to Biknes, they pray like that. They're not allowed to pray drunk. You're not allowed to pray drunk. Not allowed to pray uh, uh, high. Not allowed. So they have these uh, these sessions, these different keilot are trying to encourage people to come to Biknesset with different strategies. And uh, I don't know, some of these strategies are worse than others. I mean, I've heard some of the people that are having mamash, like they have like a, cl- a liquor closet in the Biknesset and people already start drinking in the morning. In Shachrit. Shachrit, they're drinking Arak. Shachrit, they're drinking Scotch. And they're going to, they think that it's okay to go pray that way. This is Chilul Hashem. This is a place you're not even allowed to go inside a shul like that. Not even allowed to pray there. Not allowed to go inside there. It's Chilul Hashem. So, person that is such a person that drinks on a regular basis, obviously, I don't have to tell you what kind of person he is. He's not the guy you want on your side. Especially not when you need tefillot. A person that's stingy. A person that's stingy, according to the Torah, Hashem hates him. Why does Hashem hate a person that's stingy? He says, he's the opposite of me. I only give. He only takes and doesn't want to give. He takes the money that I give him. He doesn't want to give it to my children, my bnei Torah. People that learn Torah, people that get people to come back to me. He doesn't want to share it. So... He's the opposite of me. I give him everything and he doesn't even want to share anything. And a person that's angry, anyone that's angry, according to the Gemara in Masechet uh, uh, Shabbat, says that uh, a person that's angry is like idol worshipping. So, Rabbi Yudah says these are a few things. The other thing that Rabbi Yudah says in Masechet Megillah, page 16, is connected to this week's parasha. Hashem Yitbarach tells Avraham Avinu, that he's going to bless him, he's going to bless those that bless him, he's going to uh, um, curse those that curse him, but the same applies to his descendants. The same applies to his children and his grandchildren and so on and so forth. And Avram asks Hashem, how do I know that I'm going to inherit this land, that my descendants are going to inherit all of this? And Hashem tells him, your descendants are going to be like the sand, they're going to be like the stars. Not going to be an end to them. Just like you can't count the sand on the beach, just like you can't count the stars, that's going to be your descendants. So, Rabbi Uda gave a pirush, gave a commentary on this specific pasuk, on this specific thing. He says, What does it mean? Why does Hashem say to Avram that Am Yisrael is going to be like the stars and the sand? If he was specifically talking about the number, there's going to be a lot of us. Then why don't we just say one of them? Say we're going to be like sand. Or say we're going to be like stars. Why give both examples? Why give both examples? So the Gemara says, he says, when a Jew is looking for the truth, is following what Hashem says, he has the potential to be as great as the stars. 
get to the highest level above creation. He is superstar. When a Jew is looking for excuses, when a Jew is a naval birshut a Torah, when he's despicable with the permission of a Torah, he could become worse than the Nazis. Just like the bottom of everything else. Whatever the worst people are, he's below them. He's the sand. He's worse than the worst. That's Rabbi Yehuda, the same Rabbi Yehuda. He's saying this. So, the key is that a person needs to know there, this person is not a person that just was uh, born religious and had an easy life. This is a person that had to go through many trials and tribulations, no less than any of us. But he got to the highest level. Now, here he's deciding that out of all the things that he can teach, out of all the Mishnayot, that he can teach, he's teaching us this. Be careful in your study, be meticulous, because careless misinterpretation is going to lead to a willful transgression. So, the Midrash Shmuel is applying this specific teaching to students. And it says, I'm sorry, uh, it's applying this to specifically to teachers. And it's saying anyone that's learning Torah, that's teaching Torah, has to be careful to convey whatever you're teaching, whatever lessons you're teaching, in a, in a way that the student is not going to misinterpret it. The student is not going to misinterpret it. So you're going to have, you're going to teach something, you're going to teach Allah Shabbat, you're going to teach Allah Talat Mishpacha, Kosher, whatever it is, you're going to teach things. But you have to make sure that you're clear as a teacher. Now this is twofold. A lot of times you have some, you know, people that teach Torah, but unfortunately they don't know how to empathize. Empathy means you're putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. So as a teacher, in order for you to be a good teacher, whether you're a speaker, a public speaker, or a private teacher in school, for children, for adults, whatever it is, in order for you to be a good teacher, you need to put yourself in the student's shoes. If you were the student, would you understand you? And the problem is that sometimes a teacher can easily forget that, and a teacher can easily assume that the students know everything he's talking about. When in reality, all of the students are dumbfounded. They have no idea what he's talking about. They look at him, they go like this. The whole time. They have no idea what he's talking about. What are they saying, Yatu? Yeah, yeah, the time is going. She was almost over. She was almost, they have no idea what he's talking about. No idea. The good thing is with schools is that eventually you find out if they know or don't know because you get tests. But in real life, as a rabbi in Kila and stuff like that, you don't know if people understand what you're saying or not. You don't know. That's why it's important to get the people to get involved, to talk to them privately, to talk to them before, after the shiur, to get them to ask questions, to do as much as you possibly can to see where people stand. To see where people stand and also make it a very welcoming type of environment where they feel comfortable to ask questions. Because the shiur is for them. It's not for you as a teacher. Now, 
if you're assuming that people know things, you're making the biggest mistake in teaching. And the reason why is because assuming that your students know anything at all is a mistake. And the reason why is because even if you have, let's say, for example, 100 students, and 99 of them know everything you're talking about, but one doesn't, you have to teach the one. You have to teach as if the one guy that doesn't know is the only guy in class. You have to teach a shiur as if it's him that doesn't know, that everybody is like him. So when a lot of people, they teach, and sometimes, I, I make this mistake also sometimes, uh, maybe more than I think, but I know that sometimes people say, uh, oh, you remember the, the, the story that we said about Rabbi Akiva? Oh, you remember the story that we said about Moshe? I remember, And we assume that the crowd knows what you're talking about. Because you're in a mindset when you're teaching, you're in a mindset, you're like, yeah, of course, the story will be a keyboard. You're connecting a million and a half things in your mind. But the crowd has no idea what you're talking about. No, I don't. Who's Rabbi Akiva? Forget about who the story about Rabbi. Who's Rabbi Akiva? Is he, is he, is he a Chabad? Is he a breast liver? Where, where is he? Like, a lot of people don't know. So to assume that people know these stories or know these alachot or know anything is a mistake. If you're going to say something, Say the whole thing from beginning to end. Worst case scenario, you're reminding people of what they already know. Best case scenario, they don't know. And you taught them something new that you didn't even intend to teach them. So it's very, very important that when you're setting examples, you're telling people, oh, you know the story, don't give citations. Like, give all this and give the background. Unless it's mamash irrelevant, which is why you're mentioning it in the first place. But you're supposed to, when you're teaching, supposed to try to give the whole story. And I find myself sometimes, I mention a story, and I really only want to say like the first three words of the story. I don't really want to say the whole story because I really want to go into a different point. But I force myself to say the whole story because then I think about you. And I'm like, maybe they don't know the story. Even though I said the story in one of my many lectures, maybe you didn't watch the lecture. Who says you watched all my lecture? How arrogant of me to think that you actually watched every one of my lectures. How are you going to be to even think that you watched any of my lectures? So that's Musar for myself. So anytime that I mention a story, sometimes I really don't want to mention the whole story, but I force myself to do it because I remember myself, like, why would they know the story? If they didn't hear from me, where would they hear it from? Maybe they heard from somewhere else, or maybe they didn't. Why do I think they know it? And I go, and my, so this whole time I'm looking at you, you guys think that I have this, like I know what I'm going to say, I have no idea what I'm going to say. On top of it, I'm battling myself of whether you know or don't know what I'm about to say. So it's, a, it's an interesting battle. So that's, so that's one thing, it's reminding the people, reminding the teachers. The other thing is, is that this Mishnah also is a reminder for the students know that you need to be a student. Unfortunately, in today's world, no one wants to be a student. Everyone wants to be a rabbi. Everyone wants to be a teacher. Everyone wants to teach. No one wants to learn anything. And it's a problem because you have many people that are brand new. They just started doing tshuva six months, a year, two years, three years. And then you have somebody that's been doing it for a little longer, whether it's a year longer or 20 years longer, and they want to teach him something. Like, oh, no, no, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. How do you know you know? I haven't started talking yet. I know, I know, I know. I know. Do, I need, do I need to say? I know, I know. You know how many I said? I know. 
No one wants to be a student. It's like they feel like being a student is a bad thing. But in the Torah world, anyone that knows Torah is called Talmid Chacham. Meaning, a wise student. Why are they wise? Because they know that they have to be a lifelong student. So, this is a reminder that if you're going to learn, you have to learn seriously, not just superficially. Don't just breeze through the parasha. That's why it's Alakha and Shulchan Aruch, to read the weekly parasha twice normally and once with commentary. Even though you've read it 50 times before, even if you read it a thousand times, even if you only read it once, even if you never read it, even if you're newly religious, even if you're religious your whole life, bottom line is you have to read the parasha as a male. You have to read the parasha twice normally and once with commentary. Minimum Rashi. You have to every week. It's Allah, it's more important than anything else. Have to. Why? Even if you read it, even if you know it, even if... I know. You have to do it. Why? Because there's always going to be something new. Always going to be something new. You always got to get sharper. Always got to get sharper. You always got to get sharper. It's, it's the way it is. You have to do it. So, the next thing is, if one errs in his understanding, in his application of Torah laws because of carelessness, his offense is not pardonable as an unwitting error. He will be punished as if he deliberately transgressed since he should have studied carefully but did not. This is Rashi, Rav, and Machzor Bitri. So this is what we already went over before. It says someone that just decides he doesn't feel like studying and Shemaim, they're judging him as if he did it on purpose. He didn't study on purpose. Meaning, they said, listen, this is Allahot Shabbat. You're going to need this for this Shabbat. He says, no, nah, I don't feel like doing it. He says, ah, he violated Shabbat because he does God didn't want to learn. That's how they judge him in Shemaim. We gave it to him. I gave him the book. I gave him Malachot Shabbat. He says, no, I want to watch the game. I want to watch uh, baseball. I want to watch football. I want to watch, I don't know, horse races. I want to do something that's not this. And then he violated Shabbat because of it. He said, in Shemaim, they're going to violate him. Oh, it's Mazid. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference if you violated Shabbat accidentally versus if you violate Shabbat on purpose? If you violated Shabbat accidentally, it's an accidental sin. Of course, there's a punishment. Of course, you have to pay the bill. But, but that bill has an end. If you violated Shabbat on purpose, without doing tshuva, then you're in the same place, as the person that wastes seed. On purpose, which means eternal suffering. There's no ulama for that person. There's only gainum that never ends. So the difference between accidental and purpose and on purpose is huge. Of course, both are terrible. Violating Shabbat either way is terrible. But if you violate Shabbat because you just didn't know this one halacha because you didn't get to it yet or you forgot, or something like that, okay, there's a punishment for it. But that punishment, there's a price that ends at some point. Whatever it is, it ends at some point. But if it's on, because you didn't feel like studying, so now, therefore, that's judged as if you did it on purpose, as if you said to Hashem, Hashem, I don't want to keep Shabbat. Dafka, I don't want to keep it. That punishment doesn't end. Imagine... 
This is this is this is mamash. This this is a difference of one second can determine if a person is not going to have olam haba. One second. Why? That person you're going to give him. Listen. Let's go do chavuta. Let's learn Yakut Yosef alachot Shabbat. Nah, nah. I'm going to watch the World Series. What? That's it. That's what happens. Say no. Let's watch alachot Shabbat. Yakut Yosef. Right now, chavuta. Half hour. Half hour. Then you watch whatever you want. No, no, I'm going to watch the baseball game. I'm going to watch the football game. I'm going to watch something. And Dafka, he was going to learn what he needed to know for this Shabbat. He violates the Shabbat, and then Barminan, he dies Sunday. He dies Sunday and Michalel Shabbat. That half hour, that second decision changed everything. Now, of course, there's an extreme example, no different than the abortion example we gave before, or the guy that lives with the next-door neighbor being a polar bear. But this example that I'm giving is very much a real example. Not necessarily dies the next day, but just it's a real example that people can mamash lose their olam by in a second. It's a decision. It's a one-second decision. So this Mishnah is telling us that anyone who does not sin, and anyone who doesn't study and sins because of incomplete study is regarded as a poshea, karov lemezid, a negligent bordering on willful, since he could have avoided the sin. This is Rabbeinu Yonah. And Tiferet Israel says that an inadvertent... Uh, that this also applies to the teachers. Meaning... If the teacher is the reason why he sinned, this is actually a rebuke for all the teachers. If the teacher speaks and a teacher taught him wrong, like this uh, Rasha that uh, has long payers that's telling people that the wife doesn't have to go to the mikveh, or that, uh, huh? You know, oh yeah, he's now he's now a, uh, a navi shekir. Now he says God speaks to him. Now he says God speaks to him and told him thank you. Uh, so this idiot that uh, that's a navi shekir that the days of Sanhedrin they would actually kill him. Uh, tells people that uh, if your wife doesn't feel like going to mikveh, it's okay. You can still be with her. Or if your wife wants to go to the beach on Shabbat, you should drive her for shlom bayit. Like somebody like that. This the Tiferet Israel says that. His students, his students that are making sins because of him, all of those sins go to him. All of the Chilul Shabbat go to him. All of the the, uh, Tarat Mishpacha violations go to him. Everything goes to him. Why? Because he wasn't careful. He wasn't careful with the shtiot coming out of his mouth. He wasn't careful with the shtiot that were coming out of his mouth. So, the... They also get punished, but he also gets punished. They also get punished because he's, he's not the only source. They are obligated to lurk for, look for the truth. You can't just rely on one source. You have, to con- you have to constantly learn Torah. So anyone that learns Torah knows that everything he says, even if you, somebody that learns once a week, 
knows that everything this guy says is complete shtuyot. It's complete nonsense. It's He talks an hour, 55 minutes complete shtuyot. Even though it's only obvious for five out of the out of five minutes out of the hour, it's only five minutes you notice that it's shtuyot, but in reality the whole thing is shtuyot. It's complete nonsense what he talks about. Yeah, I mean, he's creating a new religion. My, my, uh, my uh, uh, prediction, if you will, from the first time I heard about him or heard of him about it, maybe a, know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, whatever it was, is that eventually he's going to create a new religion. He's pretty much there right now. He's, creating a, he's created a new religion, and uh, it's going to continue getting worse and worse. And uh, unfortunately, this guy is a mamash kofir gamur. Because it's a big deal. It's a big deal to get to that point. But whatever, it's not my job to put people on cherem. The point is, is that anyone that listens to a teacher and what they're saying doesn't agree with anyone else. They're saying something that no one else ever said. It's your obligation as the student, as the one that heard it, to double check. Maybe he's wrong. You can't just say, no, I heard this rabbi say, you're allowed to drive on Shabbat to take your wife on to the beach. Therefore, it's true. No, my friend, you can't take that to Shemaim and say it's okay. Why? This Mishnah. This Mishnah. He says, You have to be double-check everything. That's why the Gemara Masechet Psachim, page 110, says when you teach your own son, your own son, from a Sefer, you first start teaching your own son Torah, make sure you're teaching him from a Sefer Mugeh. What's a Sefer Mugeh? A Sefer Mugeh means a Sefer, a, a book that you've double-checked that doesn't have any mistakes. You double your own son. You have all the time in the world with him. He says, even if he's your own son, you have all the time in the world with him. He's going to take whatever you say to the bank. Make sure that what you teach him doesn't have any mistakes. So you as a student also, somebody says you're allowed to do certain things and no one else says it's allowed. You have to double check. If everyone else disagrees, he's wrong. It cannot be, it cannot be that any rabbi from this generation is right and Rashi is wrong and Rambam is wrong and anyone from previous generations is wrong. It cannot be that any of us are right and Ravavadya is wrong. Cannot be. Cannot be that Rabbi Akiva is wrong and we're right. Cannot be. It's impossible. Impossible. So, if they say you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat, you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. If they say a guy is not allowed to keep Shabbat, not allowed to keep Shabbat. If they say there's certain requirements for kosher, that's it. That's the requirements for kosher. That's it. No, it's black and white. It's black and white. So, if you hear rabbis saying otherwise, like this jokester or a few other jokesters out there, you have to double check. That's what this Mishnah is saying, is that you can't use the excuse, oh, the rabbi told me I could wear a wig, so it's okay for me to wear a wig. No. You have 117 poskim, no less than 117 poskim. The greatest poskim in history. 117, it's a ratio of 30 to 1, meaning for every one posek that said you're allowed to wear a wig, any wig, forget about the wigs of today, no one allows that. But let's say they allowed anything. For any of the poskim that say, the handful of people that said you're allowed to wear a wig, there's 30 to 1 ratio almost of those that are saying you're not allowed. 
So to say, no, I'm going to use the 1 out of 30 ratio, that's hogwash. That's nonsense. Why? Because if I told you that there is a 30 to 1 ratio favoring that your drink has poison in it, you of course wouldn't drink it. If I told you even if there's a 1% chance that there's poison in your drink, you wouldn't drink it. So why are you putting poison on your head? Why are you putting poison in your neshama? Why? You wouldn't take the chance. That's what this Mishnah is specifically talking about. It says you can't just blame the rabbi. But the rabbi can't just blame the student either. The rabbi has to be Zayil, has to be Zayil in what he's teaching. So now we'll finalize with this. This very same Rabbi Yehuda has a uh, famous Gemara. As a famous Gemara in uh, Baba Metziah, page 33a, is a debate between Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Meir Baal Anes, and Rabbi Yossi. So it says, Tanu Rabbanan, Rabbo Shamro, Rabbo Shalamdo Chokhmah. It says, Who's your rabbi? Who's your rabbi? Does he have a smicha? Does he have two smichot? Does he have a, did he go to Kolel for 10 years? Who's a rabbi? What's the definition of a rabbi? I want to know, who is the rabbi? Does he have a smicha? Does he not have a smicha? Because technically, since Moshe Rabbeinu gave smicha to Yeshua ben Nun, they continued that tradition, but then it ended in the times of the Gemara. It ended. There's no smichot anymore. The smichot that they give today, you pass a test, you pass a few tests, and so on, that's not the smicha of Moshe Rabbeinu. That's just something they started doing in recent generations to make it more official and to also make sure that people know what they're doing. But there's certain things, like for example, for teaching, there's no smicha for that. There's no certification for teaching. There's no certification for that. You can't get a smicha for teaching. So does that mean you can't be a rabbi? If you just teach, you're not a shochet, you're not a butcher. You want to be a butcher, you have to get smicha. You want to do be a, a, a do chupain kiddushin, you get smicha. You want to uh, do a, deal with divorces, you have to get smicha. You want to be an expert in tarat uh, mishpacha and uh, tell women if the blood that's coming out of that area is uh, uh, makes them nida or not. If it's coming from a wound or it's coming from uh, the uterus where it makes them nida, you have a smicha for that. You want to be a Dayan, you have a smichot, and so on and so forth. There's different levels of smichot. Smachot. But if you want to just teach, you want to teach Torah, you want to do Kiruv, you want to teach uh, Lachot Shabbat, you want to teach uh, a few friends once a week. Are you a rabbi? Are you not a rabbi? Can you be a rabbi? If you get a smicha for a butcher, but you're not teaching about uh, slaughtering. So, do we still call you a rabbi? Who is the rabbi? There's an actual gemara for this. Who's involved? Rabbi Yudah. Rabbi Yudah is involved in this one. So, there's a debate. Who is a rabbi? So, Rabbi Meir Baranes, his side says, the one that taught you, divrei chokhmah. The one that taught you, divrei chokhmah, velo mikre mishnah. Meaning, the one that taught you gemara. The one that taught you wisdom, wisdom is, is called the Gemara. 
not the one that taught you the Chumash, and not the one that taught you Mishnayot. The one that taught you the most difficult part of the Torah, that's your rabbi. That's your rabbi. That's what Rabbi Mirbanones says. That's one side. He says, someone that teaches Gemara, he's the rabbi. Not the one that teaches Chumash. Parashat Shavuot, no, no. Not someone that teaches you Mishnah. No, that's not. Someone that taught you Gemara, that's the rabbi. That's what Rabbi Mirbanones says. That's one side. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, that's not it. Kol sherof chokhmato imano. The one, not the one that taught you Gemara, but the one that taught you most of what you know. Because let's say you have, out of 100% worth of knowledge that you have, 100% worth of knowledge, you got one guy that taught you Gemara, 10%. 10%. But there's a one guy that taught you a bunch of other stuff, that's 90% of your knowledge. So the 10% is really a rabbi? No, of course not. He says, the one that taught you most of what you know, Rabbi Yudzai says, that's your rabbi. That's a rabbi. Because he taught you most of what you know. If, let's say, you have, you switch rabbis, like you're switching underwear. You have, let's say, I don't know, five rabbis a year. You like to watch Ishurim, 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 every day you have a different rabbi. Fine. It's not exactly the best idea, but whatever. You want to change rabbis, Shrecha. Really, you should do only a few. One for Alachot, one for Musar, and... Maybe one for that you talk to and so on, but you shouldn't have that many rabbis. That's just a suggestion. Uh, because you get confused. Uh, but anyway, Rabbi Uda says, if let's you have five rabbis, one guy is your main rabbi. He's the one that taught you most of the stuff you know. Let's say you learned 50% of what you know from him. And the other four, you learned the other 50% combined. So of course, the guy that taught you 50%, He's your rabbi. He's the rabbi. That's the second argument. So first argument says someone that taught you Gemara. Second argument, so the one that taught you the most of what you know. Rabbi Yossi gives a chidush. He says, I have a chidush from David HaMelech. Source, David HaMelech. What's the source? It says, Afilu lo ira'inav, ela b'mishnah achat. Ze'u rabbo. It says, even if he taught you one Mishnah, he's your rabbi. One Mishnah, he taught you one Mishnah. How do we know? One of the enemies of David Melech taught him one thing. For the rest of his life, he called him rabbi. David Melech, Kodesh Kodeshim, his enemy, taught him one thing. For the rest of his life, he called him rabbi. Even though he's his enemy. Why he taught me something? He taught me something. So Rabbi Yossi gives the chidush with the source of David Melech, and that's how the, uh, the, the that's what the uh, Gemara goes with his opinion. If he teaches you one aracha, he's a rabbi. So from there we learn maybe not be your rabbi specifically, but he's a rabbi. Meaning from there we learn anyone that teaches Torah is considered for all intents and purposes a rabbi. That's what a rabbi is. It does not require a smicha. It does not require a pillow. It does not because smicha also means a cover, a blanket in Hebrew. It does not require a pillow. It does not require a bed. It does not require certifications. If you teach Torah, you are a rabbi. Now, why is this important? Is because people sometimes don't want to learn from certain people that don't have a smicha. 
So you should know that first and foremost, most of the famous speakers in the world uh, do not have a smicha. Most of the famous ones do not have a smicha. Uh, and the reason is not because they don't know Torah. They know plenty of Torah. The reason why is because there's no smicha for teaching. It doesn't exist. If it existed, everyone would get it easily. It doesn't exist. And if you tell them, listen, so why don't you at least get a smicha for something else? For what? Why would someone go get a smicha for being a butcher if he's not going to teach about slaughtering cows? If he's going to teach you about Alachot Shabbat, what is the smicha for slaughtering cows going to help him? What is the smicha for uh, Tarat Mishpacha going to help him if he's going to be teaching about, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, the Alachot of uh, Kosher? I'm sorry, that was an example. Uh, Shabbat, again. But the point I'm trying to tell you is that a, uh, you know, there's, there's no smicha for it. So, if you have time to go get a smicha, get a smicha. But the point is, is that people need to know that the, uh, some of the greatest minds that ever lived did not go through the current system that we have today. For example, Rav Ovadia, and also Rav Yashiv, both did not have a, the traditional smicha that we know of. Meaning they didn't go through the testing system, uh, you know, where they tested them, like they do today when people want to get uh, become a rabbi, they have to take a test. Rav Vadya and Rav Yashiv did not do it. And the reason why is because they were called Gaon Mukal. Gaon Mukal means they're a known genius. It would be an embarrassment to the institution to test them. They know more than the people testing them. And they not only became rabbis, they became the Av Bedin, the heads of the Bedin. So as far as the... Uh, the um, Rabbi Yehuda is not telling you this specific uh, opinion here for no reason. He's telling you this is all connected. This is all connected. One is connected to the other. He says, of course, you have to make sure that you're going to learn from someone that knows what he's talking about. Of course, you have to make sure that you learn from someone that's an expert. But even if you find someone that's an expert, that has a smicha or doesn't have a smicha. Doesn't make a difference. You yourself are responsible to double check everything. You yourself are responsible. You can't just blame the doctor for everything. Just like you wouldn't go into a uh, operation room and start operating on a patient without learning the material that you need to learn in order to be a surgeon. You're not just going to go, oh yeah, this looks good, I saw it in a show. I saw in the show they were cutting over here and they pointed at the, the nurse for something and they continued cutting. What are they gonna, if you'd started doing that, what do they do? They're going to arrest you. They're going to arrest you. If they found out that a surgeon did not have a certification that he needs in order to, be, to do, perform operation, they would fire him. But even if he had the certification, but he really wasn't aware of what was going on with this patient, he just went in, he had no idea who this patient is, and he just told people, hey, listen, just open up his, uh, his, his chest. Yeah, but the surgery is on his leg. Open up his chest now. But the surgery is on his left knee. Open up. He started opening up his chest and started like playing inside. He go to jail. Why? Because he's, he's, not, he's not careful. Can't play with this stuff. The same goes with your neshamot. 
You can't just throw your neshama and say, oh, whatever happens, happens. If the rabbi says it's okay, then it's okay. If he doesn't say it's okay, it's not okay. If I don't have time to study, then so be it. Hashem's going to forgive. Hashem's going to forget. Hashem's going to let it go. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be okay. You can't act like that. Your neshama is on the line. Your neshama is on the line. And from here, we understand and connect to this week's parasha, as well as to what Rabbi Yudah said. It connects it all. All of us, Baruch Hashem, have had plenty of time to make mistakes. All of us have made plenty of mistakes in our life. Plenty. Whether it sins against Hashem, or it sins against our spouses, or it sins against how we raise our kids, or it sins against our teachers, or our students, or our customers, or whatever. All of us have made plenty of mistakes. Plenty. Plenty. In reality, we don't know if we're going to live long enough to fix all of them. We don't know. The only way, the only way that we can assure ourselves that our tshuva will be complete and we've exerted all effort, and we've been ultra-careful with everything, and we tried, mamash, doing everything, to get our tshuvah to be completed when the Mashiach shows up, when the time that they ring the bell in Shemaim, and they say, okay, it's time for so-and-so to show up in Shemaim. Whenever day comes, and they ring the bell, and they say, okay, the shofar is ringing, time, finished, okay. Only way, it's if we help other people do tshuva. And the reason why is because if you lived in this world 30 years without keeping Shabbat, and you started keeping Shabbat, even if you kept Shabbat for another 40 years, you're 70 years old, you kept Shabbat for 40 years, you still have many years of missing Shabbat. Even if they only judge you from the age of 20 to 30, you still have 10 years worth of missing Shabbat. Ten years worth of missing Shabbat is no less than 520 Shabbats. You're going to go up to Shabbat and you're going to say, you have missing 520 Shabbats. What do you want us to do? You can't just show up with missing Shabbats. You can't just show up with missing kosher. You can't just show up with these sins and expect us to just let it go. Okay, you were chassid, you tzadi. Okay, great. But it's still missing Shabbat. You're still missing the core foundation for a decade. You still did all these things that's missing. There's still a deficit in your account. Okay, the rest of the years you did good. You did fine. We want to give you Gan Eden. But there's a, there's a deficit for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. There's a deficit. We don't know how long we're going to be here to fix that deficit. The only way is Kiruv. Because every time you get somebody to keep Shabbat, it's like you kept Shabbat twice. He kept Shabbat, you kept Shabbat. It's like you kept two Shabbats. So that means that every week you're keeping two Shabbats. He keeps Shabbat for 20 years. You kept Shabbat twice for 20 years. Now, that missing 10 years, you've made up for it. You used to make all types of crimes against Hashem. He stopped. He's helping you fix your sin. That's why Avraham Avinu, already almost 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago knew that Kiruv had to be a part of his life. 
Because when we're introduced to Avraham Avinu, he's already 75. Even though the Midrash introduces us to him at three years old. When we start talking about Avraham Avinu, he's 75 years old. I'm sure there had to be something. There had to be something. Not that Chash Shalom, he's like us. But the point is, he knew the significance of other people doing mitzvot. He knew the significance of Kiru, of what it does to our own neshama. So, since none of us know how long we have, none of us know when a Mashiach is going to show up, we all have to make sure that we spend time doing Kiruv. Like I said, you can teach, you can contribute, whether it be money, time, skill, something. Because to show up with a deficit in Shemaim, it's not an option. To show up not knowing is also not an option. Because ignorance from the law does not absolve you from the law.